When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. What a show we have for you today. Whatever it is you're into... We have something that is going to scratch your itch today. Uh, this is going to be one for the ages. Coming up in about uh, 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Ralph Nader, longtime consumer advocate and uh, former independent candidate for president, also a best-selling author. He's written more books in his life than I've actually ever read. I'm looking forward to talking with him about uh, something that I'm very interested in, which is whether or not we're moving to a cashless society, I went to a baseball game the other day, and they don't take cash. And Ralph Nader has some real concerns about what that means. Fewer and fewer businesses taking cash. And some municipalities and some states actually have passed laws requiring businesses to take take cash. And some businesses are still ignoring that. So we're going to get into that in uh, in just a few minutes. But I'll tell you, in all sincerity... You know what really grinds my gears? You know what kills me? These robotic spam text messages from politicians that I've been getting. I don't know what it is. I, I really think part of my problem in life, not just with respect to this, but in, in terms of just my time being budgeted improperly... I really think too many people have my number. I really do. Uh, I've, I get so many robo-texts. Uh, uh, some of them are from very worthy charities. Others are from, most of them are from politicians. Look, th- just today, Salvation Army. Uh, what's this? This is, um, who's this? Nikki Haley asking me to uh, donate money to somebody. I don't know. Who is this? Let's see. Uh, support Mike Lawler for Congress. Who is this one? Uh, this is uh, and then I always unsubscribe. And yet I just keep ending up on more lists. It's really the absolute worst. It's really annoying me like crazy. Um, it's the I, I, my phone buzzes, buzzes, buzzes. And there's no differentiation between one of these spam text messages, which is what all these political solicitations are to me, ver- and and something and a text message from my wife or a friend or a family member or a coworker. Oh, here's a text message from Sarah Palin <laughs> asking me to give money to her. Let's see what else we got. I, I mean, th- there's all these text messages. This is just this week. Just this week. It's too much. It's too much. Well, now. Apparently, I I don't know if you've experienced this. Call me if you have, 800-848-9222. And this is a nonpartisan issue. I'm getting them from everybody, Democrats, Republicans, a couple of independents even. And 
I'm apparently not the only one that's pretty ticked off about this. Evidently, a lot of other Americans are sick of the constant barrage of what they call robo-texts from political campaigns. Listen to this statistic. Campaigns have already sent 90.5 million text messages this election cycle, including some 68 million from Democrats and around 23 million from Republicans. Marketing texts have an open rate. You ready for this? Of 98 percent compared with what do you think it is for emails? 22 percent for emails. So that's why these campaigns are turning to robotexts instead of these mass emails, because nobody's opening the emails. They're just delivering them. That's a whole nother can of worms, which we'll talk about if we if, if you care. So 98 percent open the text. You know what it is? You can't tell right away that it's that it's spam. You think it might just be a regular text message and all of a sudden you open it and it's uh, it's somebody asking you for money. Uh, keep up the momentum. Are you all in Congressman Lee Zeldin's rescue mission to save our state? No, I'm not all in. I'm out of these text messages. What else do we have here? Uh, so many. of these. I must be getting five or six of these a day. Now, maybe it's because I've never mixed an election and maybe it's because I've donated to a lot of campaigns over the years. Maybe because, I don't know, because I'm on the radio. Maybe it's just because too many people have my number. I feel like I get more than most, but maybe everybody's drowning in these. Tell me. 800-848-9222. But here's what's happening. The, there is now a lawsuit. So some Americans are bringing a class action suit. The plaintiffs in this case are citing the Telephone Consumer Protection Act which cracks down on phone solicitation when building their cases against these campaigns. Texts come multiple times a day, multiple campaigns in multiple states, and sometimes they're even addressed to, this is not happening with me, but sometimes they're even addressed to deceased relatives because some of these voter lists are so outdated. And so now there's lawsuits against campaigns on the left and the right from Texas to California and beyond. I wonder what's happening in New York, because I'd love to join up with a lawsuit in New York. There's usually an option to hit unsubscribe or stop to end. you got to send back the word stop to end, which I always do. And yet I'm still drowning in these text messages, these SMS text messages. Kinwa Kung of Fremont, California, has filed a civil complaint against the DNC, the Ohio Democratic Party, President Biden's campaign, and Tim Ryan's campaign for senator. Kung claims that robotechs have invaded his privacy and drained his phone battery. So far, none of the parties have responded to his suit yet. I feel this guy. This, I feel the same way. If there's a lawyer in New York that wants to take my case on this and you, you want to do it pro bono or on contingency, let's, let's rock and roll on this, baby. This is killing me. In the past, both the Obama and Trump campaigns, they've been involved in these robotext lawsuits, and they settled them. The ping on your phone is the new knock on the door. Campaigns really need to dial this back, not only to avoid annoying voters, because I'm telling you, I am not... Well, look, I'm probably going to vote for Zeldin because I don't have much of a choice, but I am... 
I don't want to give money to anybody that sends me a text message asking for money. I don't want to vote for anybody that's going to annoy me with one of these spam text messages. My philosophy is unless I can possibly avoid it, unless I cannot avoid it at all, I am not voting for and not contributing a dime to anybody that's sending me these spam text messages. So um, we'll see what happens. I hope uh, this guy in California gets a big settlement. If you want to email me and uh, co- collaborate with me on one of these lawsuits in New York. I don't know if one has been filed already. I don't see. I see Texas. I see California. I see some other states. I don't see one filed in New York, but I'd love to uh, bring a case to stop this. Email me if you're interested, if your attorney interested in representing me, Morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Now, you know the other thing that I'm just about over um, you know when people used to have blackberries, when blackberries were kind of a new thing, there would be a little message at the bottom of the blackberry saying something to the effect of, pardon any typos, this message was sent from a, a blackberry whatever, right? And uh, that made that made sense because people were still getting the hang of these ba- blackberries and all sorts of things. Now, in the era of iPhones, in the era of droids, in the era of whatever wireless device you want to use, almost, I feel like half emails, maybe more than half, are sent by one of these wireless devices. And yet, I still get all of these emails all day long that say, in words or substance, pardon any typos, This message was sent from my iPhone. Well, I'll tell you. You know what really grinds my gears? The fact that people are still including this disclaimer to excuse away poor grammar and typos. Now, if we're now in a place in society, and I think we are, where it's acceptable for these mobile devices to send emails and that be the norm, then let's do away with this pardon any typos, this message was sent from my iPhone. Yeah, so was that guy's email. And yet that guy didn't feel the need to include a disclaimer at the bottom saying pardon any typos. He, unlike you, actually took the time to read his email before he sent it to me and made sure there was no typos in it. Guys, this needs to end. This is a, and I'm all for nostalgia, I'm all for throwbacks to other eras. We've talked about this before. I may get into this with Ralph Nader in a minute. But um, this makes no sense. Just check your email, make sure there are no typos, and then hit send. We've got to do away with these email signatures at the bottom. Pardon any typos. This message was sent from an iPhone. No, I will not pardon any typos. I will hold you responsible if you're committing typos and sending it from an iPhone just as I would as if you were sending it from a computer. Sorry, I will not pardon your typos. Is there a response? Can can I have an automated response that says um, I am not only not asking for your forgiveness for any typos in the email that you're just uh, that you've received, but don't bother asking me for uh, a forgiveness for your typos. I'm opting out. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Ralph Nader joining me in just a minute. Warren is in Sydney. Hello there, Warren. How are you, uh, Frank? 
I'm doing uh, great. I, I go through exactly the same thing up here uh, uh, in rural New York, and uh, I am so sick and tired. I've called T-Mobile. I've checked with this organization, that organization, how it can be stopped and what you can do. And every one of them have a different statement on what to do, and none of it works. But I was told that your credit card companies sell a lot of that information to these pe- people, and that's where they get all the the, the emails and, and, and the well, I'm sure that's your true. phone numbers. I, I'm sure that that's true, Warren. Card. I think it's a lot of – thank you for the call. And I think it's a lot of campaigns – that end up selling this material to other campaigns or at least renting these lists. And, you know, that's what I get for donating to campaigns, I guess, right? I get barraged with these text messages. But it's not right. It's not right. It's annoying. It's an invasion of privacy. It's killing my battery, and it's, it's, it's annoying. And I'm sick of it. And, Warren, you're going to be the first guy I call if, I'm, if I join one of these class action suits in New York because maybe we'll, we'll add you as a plaintiff to this. Email me if you're interested in collaborating with me on this, especially if you're a lawyer. Uh, Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. All right. Ralph Nader, legendary consumer advocate and former presidential candidate, writer, and more, joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, one of the great joys of working in radio, and there are many, uh, you get to entertain people, you get to uh, hopefully shed some light on some interesting stories people may not be aware of, you get to have a lot of fun most of the time, you get to uh, talk with callers from all walks of life, but by far, selfishly, the greatest joy that I've had in working in radio has been to speak to, to interview, to meet, to get to know. And in some cases, befriend people that you've always really admired. And I can't think of a person that I've had more admiration for throughout my entire life than Ralph Nader. Uh, Ralph Nader is someone who has saved more lives through his activism, his research and work than most people who have ever lived in the history of human society. And that is not an exaggeration in the slightest. It is a great pleasure to welcome back longtime consumer advocate, former independent candidate for president, and the author of many books, including the Ralph Nader and Family Cookbook, which is filled with a lot of great recipes, even if you don't like Ralph's politics or Ralph's messaging. It's great to have back on the program, Ralph Nader. Mr. Nader, it's great to talk to you as always. Yeah, thank you very much. One thing about the cookbook, it has the Mediterranean diet, which is been viewed by nutritionists as the healthiest diet in the world. So it doesn't distinguish between conservative and liberal <laughs> eaters. <laughs> and and the, these are recipes from your parents' restaurant, right, that yeah, they ran for, yeah, for a long time? Yeah, what we grew up on and, and yeah. she, uh, from Lebanon. It's uh, recipes, and it, it's very it, – it's not high on sugar, salt, fat. It's heavy on vegetables and fruits, tremendous, delicious uh, recipes because of condiments and all kinds of uses of garlic and mint. And so it's the Ralph Nader Family Cookbook. Local publisher in New York, Akasic Press, if you want it, you can get it autographed. 
Uh, Great gift. It is, and people can order it on Nader.org. I have a copy, and I'm quite partial to the Baba Ganoush. People should try that. Um, uh, speaking of how people are ordering things these, these days or purchasing things these days, you had a terrific column about some of the potential hazards of a cashless society, and in this column, you put out a clarion call for a civic group to arise to oppose the move towards a cashless society. How prevalent is the cashless society becoming, and why is this bad news for the public? Well, the moment you uh, start buying things and it, with a credit card, debit card, payment system, PayPal, and so on, you enter a, a credit-type gulag of debt, interest rates, and you lose control over your money. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're buying things with cash. You don't have a credit card. And uh, cash is defined, by the way, as paper money, checks, and money orders, not just paper money. And by mistake or oversight, you bounce a check. Uh, the bank will charge you 35 bucks. It costs them less than a dollar. It's a profit center. It's billions of dollars a year. Now, once you're in the credit card gulag, they can charge it and enforce it by simply deducting from your uh, your credit card base, your your account. But if you're on a cash basis, they have to ask you to pay for that. They have to ask you to pay for the $35. Now, people are going to object if they have to write a check uh, to all these uh, groups that are done in you, all these corporations that have late payment fees and penalties and Surcharges. I mean, it's, it's, it's up to 330 different kind of fees in the banking industry. Uh, and if if you're stuck and you've lost control of your money, you've lost control of your privacy because they know all your payments and what you buy, what, what you prefer, what you get for your kids, what you get for your friends, and they use that money, as everybody knows, that data rather, uh, to feed to advertisers, at least the Facebook and Instagram uh, people and who knows what else, you expose yourself to identity theft. You can't have identity theft if you uh, pay cash or by check. You have identity check because you're in the credit card gulag. And as a result, there are millions of identity threats which become real nightmares, become real nightmares to people. You can imagine what it takes to unravel something like that. So that's why I came out with this column, because in a strange way, nobody 2,000 years ago, Frank, would have predicted this. The smartest people 2,000 years ago would never have said that if money is available with credit and you can get it instantly, uh, it's not going to be a good thing. They would think it would be a great thing. Uh, But... And I I haven't begun to touch on the negatives here that go on. For example, once you're in the credit card gulag, you're subject to these fine print contracts, which you really can't negotiate. You sign, you click on, it's over. You can't change a word, can't change a number, uh, which is completely opposite what freedom of contract is all about, which is a meeting of the minds between the buyer and the seller. When was the last time you met the mind of shall we say, Citicorp or Prudential Insurance. 
It doesn't happen. So what they do is once they got you snagged, then they say, oh, you cannot file a lawsuit against us. Uh, you cannot have a trial by jury, as your right is under our Constitution. You cannot, um, you cannot uh, exercise liability against us if we mistreat you. No. So basically they're crossing over from contract into the uh, wrongful injury of tort law and, and uh, limiting your access to the courtroom, and limiting your access to justice. So you have privacy. You have the limitation of going to court where they find fine print to prevent it, shove you into coercive arbitration where they prevail most often. You have the uh, identity theft problem. And you have all these incredible interest rates. The average interest rate right now uh, for student loans is about 5 or 6%. The average interest rate for unpaid credit card balances is around 17%. Mm, mm. And the average interest rate for payday loan rackets, I mean, that, that, the sky's the limit. Once they roll it over and roll it over, it could be four or 500%. So that's why we're proposing a new citizen group. And the wonderful thing about it is it's not partisan. It's not red state, blue state. They all get screwed the same way. It doesn't matter <laughs> what their political background is. But we want to build one where there's a strong defense of cash, a strong defense of freedom of contract, a strong defense of privacy, and a strong defense of your right to go to court. And, you and, actually, uh, you and, and actually point point your out in your perpetrator accountable. You actually point out in your column uh, to your point about this being a nonpartisan movement that Republicans actually, according to opinion polls, oppose the movement to a cashless society by a much higher margin than Democrats and independents do. That's right. Uh, that that really was uh, uh, surprising to some, uh, especially. The margin was was quite large. The margin. Uh, look at this. Look at this uh, figure. This is a Gallup poll. It just came out. They said uh, 56% of Americans like to have cash with them at all times when they're outside their home. And that's not surprising. They get caught in the situation, and they want to have uh, some reserve cash, but. Republicans are most resistant, the poll says, to a shift to a cashless economy. 60% saying they would not like it. 60%. Independents register 45%, and Democrats register 28%, saying they do not want to shift to a cashless economy. Uh, that's surprising. Uh, I'm uh, a bit surprised about the Democrats' obtuseness here. Because all you have to do is look at authoritarian regimes around the world, Frank. Why do you think China wants to get rid of cash? Because they want to. Con the government wants to control you. So this isn't just corporations wanting to control you, control your money, rip you off, invade your privacy, uh, expose you to identity theft, block your courthouse room uh, uh, access. Uh, the U.S. Treasury, for example, is saying to Social Security recipients, if you don't open an account, it could be a direct express or open a bank account if you're unbanked. Um, you're violating a federal regulation. We want to send you your Social Security check every month, 
uh, electronically. We don't want to send it in the mail anymore. Really? I mean, <laughs> I mean, what's going on here? So authoritarianism in the corporate world and the government world wants to get rid of cash, check, money order. You'd think American Express would be a little upset about that because, you know, <laughs> from way back, Frank, that's one of their major business lines. The only commercial group that is on the side of retaining cash, and not surprisingly, is a segment of the ATM business. Mm. Obviously, right? If you don't have cash, what do you have ATMs for? So this is going to be a very hot issue. Let me tell you why. Because there are some states that prohibit businesses from not accepting cash. I mean, some of your listeners are now saying, what's going on here? Cash is legal tender. It's a U.S. statute code. You got to take it. Well, you don't have to take cash if you're a seller. If you notice the buyers, like when FedEx stopped taking cash, one of the first companies quite a few years ago, they had a notice. When you walked into their office, they said, we don't take cash. The Treasury Department says, if you give consumers notice, then you can deny using cash from them. You can say you'll have to use your credit card or your debit card. But now you see some companies are violating state laws. There are several businesses in District of Columbia that prohibit uh, cash transactions, and they're violating D.C. law. Wow. And when uh, my associate went to the D.C. government and said, hey, why aren't you enforcing the law here? He said, well, we, we don't have funds to enforce the law. Massachusetts was one of the first uh, uh, states to protect cash buyers, but there may be seven, eight states have passed. Some cities are beginning to, because here's the reason. There are tens of millions of Americans who are unbanked. They don't have a bank account. They don't have credit. They're low, most of them are low income. And as a result, where are they left? Where are they oh, left? Well, no, uh, I, I, I think you make the great point in the column and in this conversation that while uh, a movement towards no cash might be convenient for a lot of folks, not only is this incredibly inconvenient for uh, the unbanked and for the poor, but you, you this ends to an endless this leads to an endless spiral of of debt. And as you pointed out, because you don't really have freedom of contract, you lose your freedom to go to court and things like that. It really is a genuine threat to democracy. All that being said, are you fighting against the inevitable here? It does seem like all the momentum for all the factors that you've just stated is on the side of cashlessness. Are you optimistic that this tide can be stemmed? Oh, very much so. Uh, once you re- once you show people what the uh, future direction is, because the more people are stuck in this credit debit payment system gulag, the tighter the tentacles, because they know they got you, so they can rip you off in more ways. For example, now, some of the fine print contracts, you'll love this, uh, have a phrase called unilateral modification. In other words, the seller can unilaterally <laughs> change the contract and say, oh, you agreed on page 32 in the fine print to do that. Well, that's a complete repudiation of meeting of the minds and consent between buyer and seller. And, and, and that's what's going on. Uh, for, for example, frequent flyer miles. Uh, if an airline decides, well, it's no longer 35,000 miles to give you a, a free trip, it's going to be 45,000. 
in the fine print. They don't have to ask your permission, even retroactively. You could have banked all these points. Suddenly you've got to put more points out to get a free trip. So I think the more people realize, even people who want to use credit cards for the uh, swipe convenience of it, et cetera, recognize that there has to be a, a society that allows for payment of cash, check, or money order, just as a, as a reserve safeguard, because they, they know they're being screwed. I know some of your listeners say, but well, some of the, these credit cards, they give points, you know, and after a number of points, you can uh, cash in, and, uh, sort, of, sort of speak, and get a, uh, a product. Yeah, but they make it up in other ways. Uh, there used to be a movement by consumers' union to, to persuade retailers to give people cash discounts. Because you go to a restaurant and you, you pay for your meal with a credit card, the, the owner doesn't get the 100% of that bill. Sure. They have to spin off 3 4 whatever percent to the credit card company. So Consumers Union said, well, why don't they give uh, customers a cash discount? Well, that was starting to spread, Frank. Guess what happened? The credit card companies came down hard on the retailers and said, you can't do both. you got to pick, choose. We're going to withhold. And, you know, the, the restaurants, they like four or five different credit cards uh, that, that uh, are part of their system. So that ended that movement. But when I talk to people even who, you know, just love to swipe their card, they know that in the background, if there is no cash, check, or money order option, there's tyranny. And I, I'm, so, I'm sorry there's not more uh, people calling for exactly uh, this kind of behavior. It seems like uh, you've been one of the few voices out there. So I hope somebody uh, steps up and heeds your call to form a civic group to preserve the rights of people that want to pay with cash, which, as you point out, is legal U.S. tender. If people just tune, are tuning in, we're talking with Ralph Nader. You could check out his column and his books and a lot of other great stuff, including the Ralph Nader Radio hour, which I steal a lot of great ideas from at nader.org. That's nader.org. Ralph, for many years, you were perceived as sort of being the face of the uh, progressive movement. Uh, These days, it does seem like two people that are ascendant or if not already the most prominent national progressives are Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. When you've brought up issues like uh, preserving the post office, uh, like uh, preserving the ability of people to pay cash, like uh, taking on corporate crime and corporate malfeasance or the corporate drug dealers that are causing 140,000 opioid deaths in a year, do you find um, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez specifically receptive to a lot of the ideas that you've been putting out there? They are if you can ever get their calls returned, which is almost <laughs> never. <laughs> they, they operate in a silo, and they'll be much more effective if they connected with citizen groups on the outside. That's the way it was in the 60s and 70s, but they don't do that anymore. So they limit themselves and therefore limit uh, the degree of success that they can have uh, in, in Congress because these citizen groups have – thousands of members. Some of them have hundreds of thousands of members around the country, and they're pretty much cut off. Just uh, tell your listeners, try calling your member of Congress. So you get voicemail, and, and uh, they said they promise they're going to call back, and they don't call back. And 
It's just a nightmare. We have a, a new pilot's uh, newspaper, which I'm going to send you. It's only in print. It's called the Capitol Hill Citizen. Uh, people who've got it have been overwhelmed uh, in, in the pleasure of uh, covering Congress in other than official source journalism. Well, it's called well, the Capitol Hill Citizen. And uh, one of the reporters tried to get his West Virginia delegation, and he, he outlined it all step by step, how he was uh, pushed here, pushed there, delayed here. <laughs> Nobody would call him the two senators and his, his representative. And so that's, that's a big problem. I think well, what, so I we wonder- have, what we have in the cash thing, uh, uh, Frank, is there are tens of millions of people who are unbanked and not part of the system. And so uh, politicians put their finger to the wind. And when uh, uh, companies want to go totally credit card uh, payment system, uh, they feel the heat from these other people. About 20% of the consumer base is using uh, cash, check, money order. And they can uh, they can make some noise, and their groups can make some noise. And some of these are civil rights groups. So you ask the question, you know, what's going to slow this down? What's going to slow it down are people who are now outside the system and can be really clobbered. You mentioned the new newspaper, Capitol Hill Citizen. I think this is so interesting because it's a print publication. These days, it seems like every day there's a new media outlet coming out that's online only, online only. Even a lot of publications which have historically had a large print following, they're migrating towards online only. Why in this environment, when the rest of the world seems to be going the other way, are you launching this new print print publication? Because of the kind of reaction we're getting. They say, what a pleasure it is to hold a newspaper in my hands without distraction, filters, all kinds of advertisements. Uh, I can concentrate on reading the newspaper. So people are really increasingly getting fed up by the intrusion, the distractions, the overwhelming clutter of the, uh, of the online uh, world. That's one. And the second, it's, it's quite interesting, is uh, they, they feel exclusive. It's like, uh, it's like the old records, right? The old uh, records now are coming back into, into vogue, right, uh, Frank? <laughs> That's true. Vinyl. It's back. Yeah, it's the made vinyl a- records. I mean, they're, they're even paying premiums for it with ads. Collectors are doing that. Anyway, I think this is going to work. Now, one of the reasons we went only print is because we put stuff online all the time. It doesn't matter. No, nobody pays any attention. It's too cluttered. There's just zillions and zillions of blogs and websites and so on. I have a, a weekly column. It's called Nader.org. I go on my radio program, Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and I say, go to uh, Nader.org. You get a free weekly column. All you got to do is sign up. Automatically it's sent to you. You hardly get a feedback. Other people tell me the same thing. They're just overwhelmed. It's too cluttered. It's become a monster. So they get this newspaper in print. It's like a clear-eyed day with sunshine. It's I quite think interesting. That, We're testing it out. I can't wait to we, read it. We wanted members of Congress to read it. And if it's mm. online, you know, they'll just it's just more clutter. So 
we had someone standing outside Capitol Hill when they go to vote saying, read all about it. Remember that old thing? Right, read sure, the old newsies. Capitol Hill yeah. citizen <laughs> and handed it free to the members as they crossed the road on the way to the Capitol to vote. I fun. think that – no, it sounds fun. I can't wait to read it. I think the digital busyness that we're all um, inundated with all day long is certainly very pronounced among young people these days. And that's why I was very interested in a book by your sister, Dr. Claire Nader, who I think I met in New York about four or five years ago when you did a book signing uh, out yes. here. She has this new book out called You Are Your Own Best Teacher, Sparking the Curiosity, Imagination, and intellect of tweens. Now, this is another issue where I don't think there should be any daylight between conservatives, liberals, independents, or people that are non-political. I can't imagine anybody is okay with this corporate digital assault on young people. And yet um, your sister's book seems to be one of the few voices out there that's making the case as to why tweens are their own best teacher and shouldn't be taught by an iPad or a wireless device. Yeah, this is a unique book. Uh, you know, there are a lot of studies of teenagers and tweens, and the Federal Trade Commission is investigating the mental health impact of, of the uh, Silicon Valley moguls uh, with, uh, with the way they are abducting these kids, seducing them, addicting them, manipulating them. I mean, this is conscious stuff. It's been documented. And these kids now are spending five hours or more a day on that iPhone or their computer. They're being sucked into this thing, and parents are losing control over their kids. How many times have you heard parents say, I can't control the kid anymore? The iPhone, even when I tell them stop, the kid runs away in the corner. Someone is, is there or, or all times during the day and not doing their studies and so forth. So Claire writes this book, and she directly speaks to them. She's sp spoken to tweens for years, and uh, – and, and, and she brings the best out of them. You know, she believes in this saying, if you have low expectation of kids, they'll oblige you. But if you have high expectations of the kids, they'll surprise you. So the book has 40, 54 short topics on all kinds of things. She introduces them to the print dictionary. She tells them about the difference between credit cards and cash. She even teaches them a little bit about torts because they see bullying, they see auto crashes, mm -hmm. uh, wrongful injuries. She gives all kinds of examples of kids in nine, ten years old, eight years old who are doing great things because, you know, kids have a great moral authority, Frank. They don't have an ax to grind. And they're practical idealists. They're wondering why the adults have screwed up the world so bad. Why can't you get rid of poverty? Why can't you get solar energy and, and deal with the climate? Uh, they're, they're very direct. And everybody has an experience where a child will look at a parent and say, you keep smoking, Daddy. How long are you going to be around? I mean, you, I mean, can you imagine the impact of that, having a seven- or nine-year-old say that to you? So, well, I know a lot of people that have quit, great quit smoking because of that. And it's a reservoir we need badly for our adults in this country. 
Absolutely. And if people want to check out the book or learn more about it, they can go to inspiringtweens.com. That's inspiringtweens.com. Very apropos today because just yesterday, the Philadelphia Inquirer had a big article about the debate about whether to ban mobile phones in schools. And they say that the research suggests that without them, schools see more learning, fewer fights, and calmer hallways. So uh, in this climate, that book is certainly worth reading. Uh, Mr. Nader, before we run out of time, Three quick issues I have to run by you. Uh, one, uh, can't ignore the fact that you run as a third party or independent presidential candidate multiple times. I voted for you multiple times. 2024, it looks like there's going to be a couple of third party options that are a little bit better funded than most independent and third party options. The crypto billionaire Brock Pierce seems to be moving forward with a run. The no labels movement, they say uh, they're prepared to put forward a centrist alternative if the candidate candidates of the Democrat and Republican Party are too extreme. And uh, also another group uh, co-founded by uh, Andrew Yang, the Forward Party, they're committed to starting a third party or furthering a third party. Are you, given everything that's going on, obviously this is not the kind of populist outsider message that you ran on, but are you optimistic that this might break a little bit of the political duopoly that the major parties have over the political process? Well, if all those examples materialize that you point out, it's going to be a banner year for third parties because, you know, they, they're they're all able to raise sufficient money to get on all the state ballots and maybe get matching funds. So they won't be, you know, starving third parties who are on three state ballots. So and and there may be more, actually. It's going to be very interesting because we have a winner-take-all system, as you know, an electoral college system that's very biased against third parties, no proportional representation as they have in Western Europe, for example. If you get 49 percent and your opponent gets 51 percent in the U.S., you get nothing. But in other countries, you get a proportion of the parliament. So every vote counts, in effect, once it rises above a certain threshold, like the Green Party, once it broke through 5% of the vote, started to get a percentage of the German parliament. Uh, So I think you're right. You're one of the few people who are pointing this out, because there's a cynicism in the two parties that all these third parties will flame out and they'll drop out and they won't have any momentum and they were, and the, the the ballot access laws controlled by the two party duopolies will block them harass them uh dis disregard uh, their uh, uh, their petitions and their signatures on uh, trivial or erroneous grounds so i think the the ones that you mentioned if they materialize uh, they're going to be enough funded so they're going to be on the ballot and people will have more voices and choices Uh, Mr. Nader, I know you're a baseball fan like I am, and uh, you've raised concern about some of the changes in baseball in recent years. Now we already have a a universal designated hitter in both leagues. Next year, there are going to be even more changes, larger base size, a prohibition on the shift, and uh, a a clock in which pitchers have to deliver to the mound, a number of other changes as well. How, how How are you feeling about the changes that are coming to baseball in the near future? Well, with one exception, um, the time clock for pictures, it's really over-regulation. I mean, imagine you, you're a shortstop at second base. You've got to figure out where you are uh, when a batter comes up. Imagine if you have larger bases. It messes up records, too. Records become sure. um, 
unfair. Uh, of course, you know, they they reduced the, the size of the mound on the pictures. Uh, and so you can't compare records. Now, you, you've got Aaron Judge who has got 59 home runs, got two more to tie Roger Maris. But Roger Maris uh, was in a, in a league where they only had 154 games. Now I think they have 166. So, okay, you know, uh, go, go Aaron Judge, but you got to make sure with an asterisk that he had more games to play. Right. So well, I, I think I, um, I am in Maris... favor of the. I am in favor of the time clock uh, because well, he... it's unbelievable how it slows the, the, the game. I mean, a lot of people turn off the radio; they just get sick and tired oh. of it. No, and I, the umpires I, I... don't push the uh, the pitchers, so it is good for them, and they can keep it in their minds when twenty seconds run up. Sure. No, I think Maris did have a 162-game season, but certainly Babe Ruth, whose record that he broke, only had the 154-game season. That's uh, that's certainly for sure. Um, well, I'm glad you, you corrected me on that. Thank you. I, you know, just so, I mean, look, I, 60 years ago, uh, we, we can all forget a thing or two. But um, you first kind of uh, arose to national prominence through your work against the Chevy Corvair, unsafe at any speed. And you, you've been more associated with auto safety than anybody. The airbag probably wouldn't be in most cars, but for you. Seatbelts, same thing. Go down the list of almost every auto safety uh, feature. These days, uh, there seems to be a big push for self-driving cars. Cars. Not only the Tesla uh, that has this self-driving car mode, but people seem to think that we're around the corner from self-driving cars populating all the streets and highways. How are you feeling about uh, self-driving cars and the possibility of their expanded use? It's not going to happen for many years. You'll have semi-autonomous already in cars, and I hope more of them become standard, not optional, like the lane changing and the autonomous, uh, semi-autonomous brakes. Those are good. But to see a, a, a driverless car, it's not going to happen. They've got to they gotta invest huge in, into the highways to adapt to it. Uh, the data is nowhere near uh, facilitating their deployment uh, in contrast to uh, the constant uh, optimistic predictions of Elon Musk, which are always wrong, and he has to keep repeating them and pushing off the date. But most important, people if they, people think that hackers can take control of their car, their driverless car, uh, they're going to lose confidence in the very phrase driverless car. Without motorist confidence, there's no way you're going to see driverless cars. And And I've been at technical conferences, Frank, and they don't want to talk about the hacking problem because it can come from 1,000 miles away. It can hack like 50,000 cars at the same time of the same model that are on the highway. It's a horrible uh, situation that they have not yet been able to address. So they are misleading people, uh, not to mention that there's a big difference between having a self-driving truck on an open Wyoming highway uh, and uh, going down in downtown Manhattan, as you know. Final final question, sir, and I appreciate you having been so generous with your time. The war in Ukraine, uh, it's now been going on for over six months. A lot of people dying, a lot of people losing their homes, the worldwide economy suffering all sorts of problems because of it. Uh, how do you see things going now? It seems like there is a little momentum on the part of the Ukrainian military in taking back some territory. Uh, where do you see things going from here, and where would you like to see things? 
things going from here? I want to see ceasefires and rigorous peace negotiations between the parties, and the U.S. is not doing the lead on that. They're spending billions and billions of dollars uh, for weapons, but they're not spending any resource and time for peace negotiations. Right now, uh, the the obvious acrimony between uh, Russia and Ukraine is not conducive. They need third parties, and throughout history, it's always been third parties that bring the parties together. And and our State Department has failed on that. I've written a column on that. You can read it on nader.org. And Joe Biden has uh, failed on that. In fact, the State Department uh, admitted uh, a few weeks ago uh, that Secretary Blinken uh, isn't even in contact with his counterpart, Lavrov, <laughs> the foreign minister in Russia, where there used to be regular communications. Well, you know, that's no way to end the war. And uh, so we, sure. we need people tell their members of Congress, stop hoopling, you know, these quicker money for Ukraine than for the opioid, uh, the Departments of Public Health in New York and elsewhere and all the needs there. So it's too belligerent. We want waging peace to be right up there at the top. And that's what the charter of the State Department called for uh, 200 years ago, waging peace through diplomacy. And it's not done. It's always a treat to talk with you. Thank you so much for the time. Hope everybody uh, checks out your sister's book, inspiringtweens.com, and they can check out your column and your books at nader.org. I'll look forward to our next interaction. Well, thank you, Frank. Thanks for alerting all those parents that are losing control over their kids to the Internet. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Ralph Nader, please give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. the new radicals you get what you give this is the other side of midnight i'm frank morano and uh, i am uh, very much looking forward to my conversation with whitley streber next hour we're going to talk a little bit about uh i don't you know so it was always reported that he had had an encounter with aliens but basically i don't think whitley streber has ever claimed that they were aliens so we're going to see if we can get to the bottom of exactly what this these entities were that Whitley Strieber encountered back in 1987. It's going to be a fascinating interview, and we will take your call. So for those of you that uh, have followed Mr. Strieber's work, we'll get to you. We'll, we'll, you can call in and ask a question if you want. 800-848-9222. Meantime, John in Freehold is holding. Hello there, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? Um, I just said uh, hey, uh, about the cashless thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could put that to rest right now. Um, what happens when the power goes out? There's power outages or solar flares or natural disasters. 
people aren't going to be able to write IOUs, unique tests. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's a, a big. You're exactly right. I think that's yet another problem with these cashless societies, uh, John. Uh, and in addition to everything Ralph pointed out, no. Uh, and again, and thanks for the call, John. I'm somebody that rarely carries cash except when I'm in a, a casino. But I uh, I recognize all the problems with a cashless society and these businesses that won't take cash. It's not fair. Not fair to a lot of people. All right, Whitley Strieber joins me next hour. A little bit later, we're going to go through your mail. If you want to send me a piece of mail and have it read, you can send it via email tonight, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And uh, we'll read them probably in the third hour of the program. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until then, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. For many years, I have been a fan of Whitley Strieber. In terms of being a storyteller, in in terms of someone who has an incredible amount of insight into a wide variety of subjects, there's simply nobody like Whitley Strieber. He's the author of over 30 best-selling books, both fiction and nonfiction, one of the most fascinating of which deals with his own very unique, very unusual experience, which we'll talk about in uh, just a moment. He has been a collaborator on a variety of projects with Art Bell, including on something that uh, became a movie that was sort of a household name. And uh, he, when it comes to the world of the paranormal... He is one of the foremost experts and authorities, and I am just thrilled that he's agreed to join me on the radio for the hour. Mr. Strieber, it is great to talk with you. Thank you for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's my first time on your show, and I'm glad well, to be I, here. Well, thank you. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll be a pleasant enough experience that, uh, that you'll, make, you'll be a repeat visitor. Uh, spe- speaking of visitors... There was an incident that you experienced back in 1987. I am sure that you get asked about it every day. You might be sick of uh, of telling the story, but uh, because the story is so interesting, I'm going to ask you to tell it one more time. You were in your cabin in upstate New York, December 26th. Um, I guess it was 1985, not 1987. The book, the book uh, Communion, was published in 1987. But December 26th, 1985, Upstate New York, what happened? Well, the impossible. I, we, it was the night after Christmas, a very pleasant, quiet day. And, uh, we went to bed normally. Everything was completely normal. Me and my wife and our little seven-year-old was in the house, too. And I certainly wasn't expecting anything unusual to happen. And in the middle of the night, I sensed movement and heard noises and I opened my eyes and I was not in my bed 
I was in a little round room, like I thought it was a tent, and there were these bizarre creatures in it around me. I I did not know what to make of it. Uh, I thought I was having a nightmare, obviously, but I couldn't wake up. I kept trying to wake up and for my bed and my bedroom to come back, but I was awake. I finally faced the fact that I was awake, and I guess I began to scream because I heard, started to hear this mechanical, very gentle, sort of female, vaguely female voice saying, what can we do to help you stop screaming, which was nothing. I mean, I was, I, I, uh, I I could not believe it, and I had no idea anything like that could happen to anyone. And it went on for quite a while. I was raped. I was uh, had a, they put a needle in the side of my head. It was absolutely appalling. It was a dreadful experience. And then it, it ended in the sense that I have no memory of how it ended. I just woke woke up the next morning feeling ill and disturbed. I asked my wife if I didn't remember any of it. I remembered something was wrong, but traumatic amnesia is very powerful, and I didn't, I couldn't remember exactly what had happened to me except that something had gone wrong during the night. And I said to Anne, I said, what happened last night? She said, well, nothing. I was quiet. And I did not know what to make of it. I finally decided an owl had gotten into the house and because these creatures had these big eyes. And I uh, said, uh, you know, I think maybe an owl got in the house. And she said, well, how? It was a good question because we didn't have a hearth. We had a stove with a soap pipe and a wood stove to heat the house. And there was no other way in. So that couldn't have happened. And over the next few days, I became more and more disturbed and uncomfortable. And it, I really went into a terrible tailspin because I began to remember bits and pieces of this event and I, I I did not occur to me that it had anything to do with anything like aliens that that was not something I thought about and I thought you, you know I must be going mad or I must be I must have a brain tumor or something I, I and I began to try to to get my wife to leave me because I was afraid I was if I this happened again and I would not get out of it. I would be a hopeless psychotic. She'd have to put me in an institution. And then what would she do for support or anything? And so we, it, the next couple of weeks were just terrible. We had fights, and my whole gestalt, everything about me just deteriorated. Finally, I decided, well, I've at this point, I had remembered the whole sequence pretty well. And I thought, I, I better go to the doctor. I, maybe I've got a brain tumor. And so I went to my doctor, and I described what I remembered at that point. He looks at me, and he says, you're telling me you think you were taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. 
And I thought, holy God, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. But that is what it sounds like. And I said, well, uh, yeah, that is what it sounds like. He said, well, I think we need to do some tests. I said, yeah, that would be a good idea. I told him about the, I was having significant rectal pain as well as pain in my head, side of my head. And he said, looked at the mark on the side of my head and said, uh, it looks like a spider bite. It doesn't look like anything serious. And then he examined me rectally and said, Whitley, you know that you've been raped. And at that moment, the bottom fell out of my life, I have to tell you. Because it, whatever had happened to me was somehow real. But we, anyway, I had an MRI scan. I couldn't grasp that. I took a battery of psychological tests that showed only that I was very, very stressed. They showed significant levels of stress. But everything else was normal. I wasn't, I, I had no sign of any mental illness or anything. Now, Whitley, let me just interject uh, before you continue. At this point, when you're going through this battery of examinations and you're, you're, being, you're being examined and you're coming to realize what happened to you, are you hoping that maybe this was some sort of a delusion? Are you hoping that this, that this didn't happen? It didn't occur to me that it happened. Mm-hmm. Even though I was injured, I, I couldn't grasp that. And actually, the doctor couldn't either because, I mean, he had evidence of the injury right there. He was examining me. And we were still going through this rigmarole with MRI scans and everything as if it wasn't a real injury. Because it just didn't compute, not with either one of us. But then finally, when all of the tests came back normal, the brain was normal, everything was normal, except the stress and the injuries. Then the idea that it had anything to do with real aliens still was not on the uh, high on the list. And I, uh, we decided that maybe it was a criminal thing. Someone had drugged me or something. Because, you know, I was a fairly famous writer at that point. And, you know, I was sleeping in this place. It was unlocked. Anyone could have come in. And uh, we just, I just was mystified by it, but terribly, terribly disturbed. I could not sleep nights. I put in on a Radio Shack alarm system. I bought shotgun and was patrolling around the house at night. It was just awful. I uh, uh, I uh, did not know what to make of any of it because I, the idea that it actually had something to do with aliens. I mean, I, I lived in the world of the normal world of where flying saucer, snicker, snicker, aliens, not possible they could be here. Were you a believer in the possibility of extraterrestrials visiting Earth prior to this experience? I never thought about it mm-hmm. much. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I was a believer or a disbeliever. If you'd asked me, I would have said, I, I guess I would have said, sure, it could be possible, but they'd have to figure out how to get here. And the distances between stars are very large, so... It's highly improbable, let me put it that way. But I wouldn't have said, no, absolutely not. I would have just said, doubtful. But 
my brother, as it turned out, had given me a book for Christmas called Science and the UFOs, because he was very interested in UFOs. And I, when I opened it at Christmas, I thought, oh, dear, what a ridiculous thing. And I just, I didn't throw it out, fortunately. I just sort of put it aside. But I began to read it, because after all, I mean, I had had, you know, part of this was that what if this was true? What if this is what, what happened? And at, toward the end of the book, there was this description of an alien abduction. And I read it. And I thought, God, you know, that does sound like what happened to me. And there was a researcher named in the book called Bud Hopkins. And it turned out he lived a couple of blocks from us in Manhattan. And so I called him up, and Ann and I went over to meet him. He was a very nice guy, a good man, and an artist, pretty well-known artist, actually, in New York. And he did this. He'd gotten involved in this because he'd had some a rather scary UFO sighting on uh, uh, in Provincetown uh, on the Cape in Massachusetts, and uh, so it did, that had gotten him interested. And he wanted to hypnotize me, and I thought, not bad idea. No interest. So he introduced me instead to a doctor, Donald Klein, who was the head of the New York State Department of Psychiatry. And I had a consultation with Dr. Klein. And he turned out to be the, one of the world's leading forensic hypnotists. He, could, he had, had many cases where he had been able to help people identify like license plates of cars that had hit them in hit and runs and things. Mm. So the guy knew what he was doing, clearly, and all the stuff about hypnosis that you see now is, is basically just made up. If it's in the ha- done in the, by, by a professional who knows what they're doing, it could be an effective tool. And now, at this point, neither I nor Dr. Klein thought that when I was hypnotized that I would continue to remember these aliens what we were doing in the hypnosis was to try to identify evidence that would help me get a go to the New York State Criminal Investigation Division, which I had already talked to, and give them sufficient information to start an investigation. Because I thought I had been assaulted by people who perhaps had been annoyed by one of my books or something, mm-hmm. or just plain crazy. Uh, that they had given me LSD or something. That was my thought. In any case, when I was placed under hypnosis the first time, I remembered things that had happened the previous October that I hadn't even thought about. And they happened when there were friends at the cabin. They absolutely threw me. I screamed my head off in the hypnosis session. And so afterwards, the first thing I did is I went home and called the friends, uh, Annie Gottlieb and Jacques Sandalescu. And I said, do you remember the time you were at the cabin in October? He said, yeah, the light, Jacques said, the light. I said, what are you talking? Tell me about that. He said, there was a huge light. Over the cabin, you don't remember? I, we talked about it in the morning. 
And then Annie says, chimes in and says, Whitley, there was something running in the house. We heard it too, running, running, running through the upstairs. And uh, that scared me pretty badly. Because apparently whatever this was had been in the house in October also. Then all the thing that this hypnosis we did in December uh, on the December incident did was make it more clear. And that was the start of the rest of my life, mm. basically, because I I didn't wake, walk out of there thinking it was aliens. I walked out of there thinking, obviously, something weird happened to me, and I don't know what it was. And I'm still sort of in that space all these years later, because I've had many experiences with this over the years. It's not gone away. I've written a number of other books about it. The latest one is called A New World, and I'm uh, from last summer before last, uh, and I can't say it's alien contact, but I can say this: there's something important about our world that we don't understand. So you, you, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Whitley Strieber, a best-selling author of uh, many books. You could check out his website, unknowncountry.com. A lot of interesting news stories on there, analysis, some more background about the case that we're talking about. But you've used uh, the the term aliens a few times in the last 15 minutes, and then uh, you just said, and I know you've said previously, that you can't say that these entities were aliens yeah what what um what do you think they might have been if they weren't extraterrestrials of some sort well that's that's the great question uh if you if if push comes to shove i would say the alien hypothesis is a leading contender but i have never but if you look about across the whole spectrum and this is a big experience many people have it not a single piece of hard evidence, not a single inch of video, nothing of these things has ever... And this house, this house is loaded with cameras. I've had cameras in my life ever since six weeks after this happened. And in all that time, not a single piece of video evidence. So if it is aliens, they're really good at keeping themselves from keeping themselves hidden and they're really really good at uh at, at they they don't want to be discovered now i will say there are a few pieces of video here and there and a few photographs here and there that may be something real i i wouldn't say that's impossible but even if we do have video we still don't know exactly what they are what if there's something from this planet mm-hmm. that we just don't understand that we that you know we they're they're very clever at keeping themselves out of our space and we don't often see them you you wrote a book about this communion which was an incredible uh, bestseller it was um in New York Times number 1 on the New York Times bestseller list yeah. over 2 million copies Sold, and uh, they actually made a uh, a motion picture about it with uh, a, a terrific, terrific actor, Christopher Walken. Uh, this is a little bit from the film version of Communion. Whitley, let's go back to that first time, the night of October fourth, last October fourth. What do you see? 
It's pretty cool to be played by Christopher Walken in any event. I'm curious what your opinion was of the film version of your book and how closely that adhered to reality. And uh, it, it it stands up over time. The film, I think, I think it's still available on um, Amazon or somewhere. I there's a documentary about me too on the Discovery Channel. It's Discovery Plus rather that's just been published called The Visitors, which this scene, this event, is replayed a little bit more realistically. So. That you know, the documentary is—it's a ninety-minute documentary, and it it goes through all of this and people like Annie Gottlieb and others who had experiences at the cabin. And my wife Anne, who's passed away, is in it because there was some video made of her as well. And but the bottom line is that 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 particular incident, the October incident was incredibly frightening to me. Mm. And even when you were playing it on the t- on the radio just now, I kind of began to relive it. And when they tried to get me to listen to it during the making of the documentary, I couldn't do it. Mm. And I still can't. It's on my website that I, I would never listen to it unless I absolutely had to because it just – it takes me right back to the moment I realized that thing was standing across the room in the – in the cabin bedroom on in on that October night, and it was just utterly appalling. I, I, no, 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 no way. To, I mean, you wake up, you you see something that can't exist, and it's there, and it's looking at you, and you realize this thing is not an animal. This is something else, and it's smart. I mean, you you know, it's not. It's not, uh, you're not in control anymore, and you know it immediately. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Whitley Strieber. He's a podcaster and the author of over 30 best-selling books, including Communion, a, a nonfiction of a, account of his experiences with some sort of non-human entities. He's written a number of other books as well, fiction and nonfiction, uh, including A New World, which uh, Whitley referenced earlier. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll try and squeeze in as many of your calls as possible. If you want to call in, our number is 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano here with Whitley Strieber. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight presents the Midnight Files. side of midnight i'm frank morano uh talking with whitley streber podcaster and the author of many best-selling books including communion which chronicles his account of experiences with some sort of non-human entities uh mr streber i know you wrote another book called the grays are the grays you is that your term for these entities that you encountered back in 1985 well it's a it's a I guess it's a term I really picked up because a lot of people call them that because they're sort of gray in color. And uh, and, and the book, the novel, The Grays, is, is fiction. It's not a it's Right, not I know that. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah, so I, it's not my particular term, but it's it's whatever – it's what they're called, what they're called generally. Now, uh, whenever there's a fantastic incident like this, a lot of – skeptics, maybe rightly so, the first two questions that they'll ask are, one, is this person delusional? Clearly, you've uh, you've uh, made clear that you were examined thoroughly, uh, and that doesn't appear to be likely. And two is, is this person making this up for publicity or to sell books or anything like that? You've actually taken a polygraph test, and uh, what were the results when you were asked about these experiences? No, I took more than one polygraph test, and I've already passed. I've always passed them. When I went to England, the BBC would have me on on the BBC unless I took a polygraph and passed it. So I took a polygraph here in the states. I did it voluntarily, partly because I wanted to see myself what would happen when I talked about it. And then in England, I you know they set their own polygraph up, and I did that and passed it as well. And and you know, you look at the stress response in the tests, and you look at the polygraphs, and you look at later the people who came up to the cabin also had experiences, and you look at all of this and the fact that even before we knew what was going on, Jacques and Annie, who I referred to earlier, had experiences at the cabin that they – Annie, in the Doc, Discovery Plus documentary – Annie talks about it just 
you know, she she remembers it vividly like it was yesterday. And Jock has passed on, or he would talk about it too, I'm sure. But in any case, you put all of that together, and you have to it has to add up to something. But what? I'm not in lie. I'm not lying. It's ridiculous that I would spend my entire life on a lie, especially one as difficult to handle as this, because I could have published communion and gone on and done other things and had a successful career without all the hassle that comes from writing about this. But I think this is important and I'm not going to quit. I'm too stubborn. <laughs> no, I love it, and we're certainly glad. Uh, we're certainly glad that you haven't. Uh, you you mentioned that uh, Discovery Plus documentary that's gotten a lot of attention. I haven't seen it yet. Here's a clip from that Discovery Plus documentary. This is Whitley Strieber. I wish to warn you: this tape was not originally made for public use. It should not be listened to by little children. It will affect them negatively. It smells like cheese in here. It smells kind. And I kept trying to wake up because I obviously was not in bed. You know, it had to be a nightmare, right? And uh, I realized these creatures were there. I kept trying to wake up because I thought I was having a nightmare. I'm getting real scared again. Real scared. Because I cannot do a thing about this. Listen, I can't listen to it. I'm sorry. Okay. I can't do it. When I hear my voice, the fear comes back into me immediately. And it's just impossible to do it. I can't listen to it. I tell you, it looks incredibly compelling. And I'm sorry if that was uh, emotionally uh, challenging for you to hear. from my ear as soon as I heard what you were going to play. <laughs> but uh, I tell you, it makes me want to get Discovery Plus just to see this documentary. What are folks going to learn in this documentary, and what did you think of the finished product? Well, it's a, it's a very solid look at this experience in general and at my, my you know, what happened to me. And it was, you know, the, the filmmakers were were respectful of of the whole thing they've got some excellent experts on there it's a it's a good show if you you know you get past the beginning which is a screaming which i mean they 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 pulled that off of off of my tape the tapes mm-hmm. of, the video, of the and it's real i mean it's just real it, i'm not an actor i couldn't just do that on command and uh, uh it's a I think if you want to understand or learn something about this experience, it's a, it's a very good place to go because I think it's maybe conceivably it's certainly it's certainly one of the very best documentaries about the close encounter experience has ever been done. I know that you've written subsequent books to communion about your life and that have been nonfiction about your experiences. How many additional incidents, if any, have you had with these visitors ever since that initial experience back in 1985? Well, back in 86, I think, I, when, once Ann and I realized it was real, that it had happened, that something was there, we really thought, you know, do we 
get out of the cabin. We sell the cabin, and I thought, well, we can't sell it without telling people what happened here. That would not be fair to other mm -hmm. people. And anyway, she said, Whitley, they're real, and if they are real, we can't just walk away from this. And I, I, we talked about, you know, what do we do? Do we try to get back in contact with them? And so I said, why don't we go out in the woods at night and sit in a place? We I knew by this time pretty much where they had taken me and where I'd gone up in the air with them and all this other stuff. Uh, why don't we go out there at night and we'll sit together there and see if we they are aware of the fact that we want to do this and maybe they'll come back and maybe we'll have a you know a more rational not not so scary experience with this she said great idea except for one problem you go out there by yourself if you want to i'm not going <laughs> And uh, so I did, actually. I went out in the woods. I started going out in the woods at night. And there, after, oh, three or four months, things began to happen at the cabin. They began to show up. And then the book was published, and I, I got, we got thousands and thousands of letters. There was just, the postmen were coming and heaping on the floor of the apartment in big piles. And I was going to, I said to Anne, how are we going to even throw these out? She said, we're not throwing these out. I'm going to read them. I'm going to read every single one of them. And she hired a secretary and she did. She read them all and she cataloged them by the thousands. It was amazing. What a job she did. And now they're housed in an archive called the Archives of the Impossible at Rice University in Texas. They've been saved. Thank God. And you can see on every one of them little marks that she made indicating the uh, a code she had of what the significance of them all was. She did a fabulous job. But not only that, she totally took everything over. She decided, you know, we're going to write a book. You're going to write a book about this. And she read every page of it. She, she was like she was just made to do this. It was mm. amazing. Then she would say, well, we're going to have so-and-so up because I think she or he will have experiences up here. And we had many people up to the cabin, and that used to happen quite routinely. The visitors would show up. It became our life. Wow. That's, and, uh... You know, it still is. I mean, the book, A New World talks about what happened just in the past few years. Do, do you have any theory as to why you or why there? Uh, well, the why there part is fascinating because when I went back, when we lost the cabin. We didn't. I didn't move away on purpose. I would never have left the cabin. But we had a lot of financial problems because, you know, South Park and stuff came on with all kinds of jokes about my my rape turned into a rectal probe, and it was a big joke and. You know, people will buy a book of a controversial author, but not of somebody who's being laughed at. So my sales collapsed, and I uh, we lost everything, and we had to leave the cabin. I couldn't go back to the cabin. It, it was too hard because it was a tremendous personal loss, as you can imagine. And finally, 
the documentary people came along, and they were very, very sweet people, very thoughtful and good people. And uh, it, we did the whole thing, and I said to the from the beginning, I'm not going back to the cabin. And finally, Mark Marbella, the, the filmmaker, called me up, and he said, well, listen, let's talk about how to end this. And I came up with all kinds of different endings, and they just sat silently and listened, and I finally had to say, uh, I have to go back to the cabin. And I did. And it turned out to be an incredibly beautiful mm. experience. The couple who own it now are lovely people. and But there was something under the ground there, there's a big seam of iron through that part of the Shangams, which are south of the Catskills, underground. The, the Iron Mountain uh, record storage facility is about 20 miles north of the cabin. And when you're there, I could feel this energy there immediately when I got back. The first night I was there, a few things happened. There were some electronic things that happened, flashes of light that actually were recorded on the documentary. The second night, everyone left. The family left. The, uh, the documentary filmmaker left. Everyone left. And I was left alone with the cabin. And so I lived the way I used to live when I was getting the visitors to show up, which I turned off all the lights. And I was alone in the house. And late at night, I it almost happened. And it had I, it was much more powerful than it would have been anywhere else. And I, I could feel it inside me and outside me at the same time. I felt like if I stayed there for more nights, I would this would start to happen again. And it's got something to do with the land and the way at least I relate to that land and that iron. I'm I'm sure it's got something to do with that. All right, we're going to squeeze in as many calls as we can at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me begin with Jim in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. Hi, Frank. How you doing? And uh, Whitley, uh, I was glad to hear your voice again. And uh, I'd like to ask you about uh, your collaboration with Art Bell. I mean, I read your book, uh, the collaboration with him. I guess it was a quickening. And... Uh, I'd like to know your relationship, and, uh, you know, Art Bell is very well missed. But Frank Morano is kind of an incarnation of him. So he's you know, I was guy. thinking about that just a minute ago. I'm glad you asked, because <laughs> I was thinking, it's like talking to Art, talking well, to Frank. Well, it's you're really both cool. very kind. I'm not in Art Bell's league, but you're, you're, you're very, well, don't very Don't worry kind. about that. No one will ever be in Art's That's league. True. He was, That's he true. was a master. But, 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 but you, anyway, what first our book was called Superstorm and it's all happening now unfortunately I wish it wasn't but you know it's, uh, it was about climate change and we were ridiculed at the time but it turned out to be completely true anyway working with art and being art's friend was great uh, we used to hang out together a lot uh, his wife Mona his first wife Mona and our second wife I should say who died, and Ann and I really had a lot of fun together. And uh, I like to joke around. I used to play jokes on Art um, unwise because he's a very good, <laughs> was a very good prankster himself. And but we, we 
we used to have just a load of fun, and I miss him big time. I miss those wonderful nights together in the deep night on the radio, talking about all kinds of wild stuff. And Oh, my, those were great days. Jim, thank you. Know, Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, did you ever go down to the island uh, where they filmed the, uh, you know, the the film with uh, uh, Jane uh, Seymour and that with, when they did the, uh, the that the, what was it called the movie the movie they called you know he went used to go down there like just to revisit with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour did you ever go down to the island with yeah them? I did uh, we absolutely did uh, uh, somewhere in time they used yeah. to have a uh, they may still on Mackinac Island in uh, in uh, Michigan. There's a big, big, beautiful old-fashioned resort there, and you, everyone used to dress up in uh, in period clothes. And Ann and I went one year, and you know we had costumes made, and we really went for it. And when we got there, we realized we had dressed for the wrong period. <laughs> and so, but anyway, we still had a lot of fun. And, yeah, we did go there, and it was really fun. Uh, Jim, thank you very much for the call. That book that you co-wrote with Art Bell, Superstorm, that actually became the basis for a huge blockbuster motion picture with uh, Dennis Quaid called The uh, The Day After Tomorrow, which uh, is still on television all the time. People still talk about it. It did very well. Well, What did you think of the film version of that, that book collaboration with Art Bell? Well, in one sense, it's realistic uh, in that it does talk about how the climate will deteriorate and what is happening, actually happening now. In another sense, it compresses everything into like a week. Right, right. A week. But, you know, it's a movie. They have to, they can't, you know, and so, uh, and and it's, it's really a, you know, it, 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 it was. It's a good movie. I enjoyed it. I've I've been very lucky in the movies that have been made of my books. Uh, the Wolf and the Hunger are both cool. Uh, Day After Tomorrow is a good movie. Communion is 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 okay too. They didn't. They they were good filmmakers, but they did not have enough money. Mm-hmm. The special effects in Communion could have been better. We're gonna, but, you know, they did their best with what they had. We had to take one quick break. We'll continue with Whitley Strieber in just a moment. We'll take your calls at 800-848-9222. This is 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano, uh, joined by Whitley Strieber, podcaster and uh, the author of many best-selling books, including Communion. One of the more recent ones is A New World. And uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Whitley's work, you can uh, check out his website, Unknown Country. 
Uh, com. There's a ton of interesting stuff on there, including about the books, and you could actually see the images of the cabin that we have been talking about. Uh, Mr. Strieber, you talked about that initial incident back in 1985. It sounds very traumatic and I think fits every definition of the word assault. You did have, though, some positive experiences yeah. with these visitors, right? What happened? Well, the next really big one that happened was about a year later, maybe, I think it was in February of 1988, or 87, but it was anyway, it was about a year and a half later, I would say, and they had, uh, we had felt like they were coming around the cabin, and I had been sitting out in the woods and imagining the idea of them coming, and we would sit together and talk and try to understand i would want to understand them and um one morning just before dawn i heard a sound like a like a you know when a chauffeur is blown in a in in temple that that kind of a sound uh, uh or a uh, sort of a mournful kind of bugle sound and it was such an unusual sound. I thought, could this have something to do with them? Because, you know, it's quiet out here. Nothing would make a sound like that. So I put my robe on and slippers and went out on the deck. And I could hear there's a little hill there. And then beyond the hill, uh, it, it goes down into an, an, through a little woods and then opens into a clearing. And I could hear a noise out there, a kind of clanking noise didn't belong so I walked out up to the little hill and across the little hill and the woods were bare because it was winter and I could see something beyond the woods in the field uh, in the clearing there was something there a big object of some kind so I started I thought maybe this is actually happening I started to walk down there but then I heard in my head, a voice that said, I, I hesitated for a moment, and the voice says, come on, come on. And I thought, whoa, that is, that's, I'm not coming on, but not with that voice. And I turned around and went back to the cabin because I thought, I, you know, what if I went down there and I, you know, and I just disappeared? never seen again what happens to Anne? what happens to my baby and uh i didn't want that you know i just couldn't i just didn't feel i could do that i didn't i would not take that risk as soon as i put my hand on the door knob of the cabin of the door back into the cabin there were these three cries above the forest this oh 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 that remain to this day the most strange and moving. I mean, they were very emotional, these cries. And they were very perfect. Like, you know, they were just perfectly spaced. They were almost like if you could imagine a highly emotional machine might make sounds like that. It was very strange. I almost turned around and went back, but then I thought I just 
there's no way I can take this risk. So I went back into the house and I went upstairs and I was sitting on the side of the foot, on the bed and I felt a presence in the room. And this was something we'd gotten used to because the cats could see them. Our cats could see them. And so when they were in the house and you couldn't see them, you felt like something was in there. The cats would be watching them move around. So the cats weren't there that day. But I'm sitting there, and I felt this presence. And the next thing I knew, I'm suddenly in another room, and I'm kind of gliding, and I'm looking around. I'm trying to figure out where I am and what this is because it was totally real. It was like I was plunged from my bedside into this completely other space in a second. And... I'm, I try to figure this out, and I'm not, I'm, it's, I'm, I would get scared if I had stayed there for long, but I'm not scared at this point. And then I recognize it. I am looking up at my mother's desk. I'm in my mother's bedroom when I was a baby, and I'm gliding because I've just started to walk. Mm. They have taken me back. In my using my own memory, I'm sure, memories that I don't have access to, to the moment I first walked, as if to say, you've taken a baby step. And that is how they communicate and where the relationship became a relationship instead of a scared guy face to face with the unknown. Wow. Because... That sensitivity got through to me. Maybe I should have gone down there, and maybe I shouldn't. Uh, uh, That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And uh, that's um, covered in the book Transformation? Yeah. Oh, and by the way, there's a new edition of Communion that's just out with a new introduction and, for the first time, an audio book, unabridged audio book, which I've read myself. It's on Audible. Well, that's uh, that's pretty neat. And again, I want to encourage people to go to your website, unknowncountry.com. Let me try and squeeze in at, le- at least one more call here uh, before we uh, run out of time for the hour. Tom is in the Bronx. Tom, you're on yes, with Whitley uh, Streber. Yes, hello. I'd like to say that part of your story about he- uh, hearing the voices uh, could come from uh, LCLF, electrical low frequency. The United States government has a lot of uh, unusual characters on the payroll. I was hit with ELF years ago uh, where I was working uh, across the street in a restaurant. They had some kind of a uh, agreement with the restaurant where they they were practicing on people. It was a... Um, a retired FBI agent with his two relatives, and they would go through the country. Uh, uh, real quick, it's, Tom, because we're only going to have about a minute. Yeah, well, anyway, part of your situation could be electrical low frequency where you hear voices It's a, uh, from uh, from somebody that looks like they're using a uh, – uh, like a uh, – 
device to, uh, to uh, all right, Tom. push the voices. Uh, well, well, I know how that voice was generated. It's generated with microwaves, and it's a, it's a, it's a something that we can now do to an extent. We do, we are able to do that. It wasn't extra low frequency. It was microwaves that generated generate that voice. But you don't and, believe that that's what happened in your in any of your. No, it wasn't the government. No, the, well, I have to tell you that I've never had a hostile relationship with the government with this. The, the uh, CIA officer became involved in this at, from the very beginning, and he was always good to us. Uh, he he he, uh, and he came often to the cabin, and they took it very seriously. They did not. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they they weren't hostile to me. Um, Whitley, it has been a real treat to be able to talk with you for the last hour. I hope we can do this again. I've learned a lot. I have pages more of uh, questions for you, and I'd love to have you back and uh, have you address some of these other the other experiences that you've had and other experiences that other people have had as well. Well, I'd love to come back. I've enjoyed it a lot, and thank you for having me. Thank you, Whitley Strieber. Check out uh, many of his books and learn more of his story at unknowncountry.com. Some interesting podcasts on there as well. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. is the other side of midnight i'm frank morano unless you've been living under a rock for the last two months you are well aware of the situation involving migrants being bussed to new york chicago washington dc and now martha's vineyard last week about 50 migrants unexpectedly landed in martha's vineyard by plane part of a campaign by Republican governors to shift the burden of housing and caring for these migrants to Democratic areas. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took credit for sending the two plane loads of migrants to the wealthy liberal enclave in Massachusetts. They described this as part of the state's relocation program. He was on with Hannity yesterday talking about sending these folks to Martha's Vineyard. Millions of people since Biden's been president illegally coming across the southern border. Did they freak out about that? No. You've had migrants die in the Rio Grande. You had 50 uh, die in Texas in a trailer because they were being neglected. Was there a freak out about that? No, there wasn't. You've had criminal aliens get across that southern border and victimize Americans, killing some, raping some. Was there any type of outrage about that? No. And then, of course, we know fentanyl deaths are at an all-time high. Where's that fentanyl coming from? Over the, it's coming over the open southern border. It's only when 50 get put into Martha's Vineyard, which wasn't saying they didn't want this. They said they wanted this. They said they were a sanctuary jurisdiction. These were people who were basically destitute and then put in a situation where they could have succeeded, but that was all virtue signaling. And not only did they not welcome them, they deported them the next day with the National Guard. Give me a break. 
Migrants from border states like Texas and Arizona have been bused here to New York. They've been bused to Washington, D.C. They've been bused to Chicago in recent weeks. Those cities, the three that I just mentioned, are considered sanctuary cities because they don't comply with strict federal immigration policies, and they typically protect illegal aliens from deportation. Unlike those cities, though, Martha's Vineyard is much smaller. They have a year-round population of around 20,000 people. So you throw a bunch of migrants into a city of 20,000, it's a big difference than putting it into a city of uh, 8 million. The, it is illegal for states to compel migrants to move. So they have to consent to be transported out of the state. So while some accepted the transportation in hopes of getting closer to their final destination, some local representatives reported that others said they didn't know where they were being sent. Upon the migrants' arrival in Martha's Vineyard, there was, in spite of how Governor DeSantis made it sound there, there was a large local effort to support them on Friday morning. They were transferred to Joint Base Cape Cod, where the state said it has the facilities to provide shelter and humanitarian support. So let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at the reactions from the left and on the right on this. The left, not surprisingly, has been very critical of Governor DeSantis. They're saying that it was a political stunt, and they're arguing that lives are being put at risk. Now, some are saying that on the left, that it's also representative of how low GOP politics have gone. Others are pointing out that, look, the residents of Martha's Vineyard backed up their talk with an outpouring of compassion and support. Um, on the right, it is a very different situation. Most of the Republicans that I've seen comment on this have praised the move by DeSantis saying the border crisis needs to be brought to the Democrats' front door. Some compared the crisis in Martha's Vineyard to how a lot of southern border towns have to deal with this stuff every day. Others noted how the migrants, as you heard DeSantis there, were quickly moved to a new location from Martha's Vineyard. The Wall Street Journal editorial board said migrants are becoming props amidst the failure of U.S. immigration policies. And I was listening to Frank Carone on the uh, the Cats at Night show last night, and if you didn't get to hear it, go back and listen to the podcast. It was really interesting comparing his experience talking with these migrants to the experience that folks had coming through Ellis Island. Um, in The Federalist, Tristan Justice noted that the migrants were deported in about 24 hours as local cl- residents claimed they didn't have enough housing for them. Then they pointed out all of the available homes that are vacant and for rent. On FoxNews.com, Carol Markowitz said that DeSantis was right to send the migrants to Martha's Vineyard because Democrats need to confront the border crisis. Now, the, the bottom line here is, well, a couple of things struck me. One, I've mentioned before the film, and I haven't seen it in over 23 years, The film, and it's a comedy, but it's kind of a dark comedy, and it's very prophetic. The film, The Second Civil War. And it's a really, again, I haven't seen it in two decades, so maybe in my brain it's better than it was. You could find it. I didn't really want to pay for it. Um, 
it, it was a made-for-TV movie, I think for HBO, and it's got Phil Hartman in it, James Earl Jones, James Coburn, Bo Bridges, Dan Hedaya. It's a great cast. And one of the things they deal with as one of the causes of the Second Civil War is this back and forth that states have with one another over immigration. The bottom line, really, is that we need Congress to act, and not for governors to troll liberal cities or liberal states. Now, the nice thing about what Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis are doing, though, is at least it's calling attention to this issue. It's made this a national issue because um, the idea is not a bad one. We should be normalizing how these immigrants come into the country and organizing it as opposed to using these unannounced stunts because you know President Biden did the same thing. Remember those? But he did it very, shh, quiet, quiet. He had these, you know, it was very well publicized at the time. He had these bus loads or these plane loads of migrants coming into Westchester and other similar airports in the middle of the night. At least what, what Abbott is doing, he's doing the same thing, but he's doing it very openly. So um, I'm not sure how much I can say about this that hasn't already been said. If you have something unique, new, and different to add to this, I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. But I don't mind the policy of busing migrants across the country from border states. It doesn't make sense that the states at the border have to bear the brunt of migrant flows alone. And the uncomfortable reality of the situation is, is that a lot of Americans in New York, Chicago, D.C., Martha's Vineyard, they do not understand what is going on at the southern border. And a lot of Democrats have not made addressing it a policy priority. This at least, to the credit of DeSantis and Abbott, this at least forces them to confront this. So I think it's a little unfair. I think it's totally fair of Republican governors in border states to say it's easy to talk about welcoming immigrants when you don't have to regularly deal with border crossings. In this case, the Martha's Vineyard population uh, does, to some extent anyway, seem to have walked the walk. Um, Regardless, it's not sustainable to have thousands of people crossing the border every day claiming asylum and then needing to be housed or being let go into the United States with a faraway court date. The the problem with the way DeSantis and Abbott have handled this is the, the chaos of a couple of planes landing in Martha's Vineyard. It really it does. They're absolutely right. It pales in comparison to the reality on the ground in places like South Texas or Arizona or uh, California, but um, the, you know, as a practical matter is, they have court dates in places that are very far away from where they're being bussed. Like somebody that might be sent to Martha's Vineyard might have a court date in Texas. So if they want to comply with the court date, they then have to find a way um, to get back to it. So the, the idea of sending migrants north is not a problem for me. Um, it's the way that some of these governors are doing it that is a little Bush League. Sending them unannounced and in some cases misleading them about where they're going 
it creates a lot of chaos for the towns or the cities receiving them. And DeSantis is spending $13 million in taxpayer money from Florida and Texas about the same amount, um, shuttling migrants to New York and Massachusetts. It's certainly a play for national media attention, and it's working brilliantly. Politically, uh, you couldn't ask for a better situation right now. But if you want to normalize and organize the process of moving migrants from Texas, Arizona, California, let's do it. We should expand existing programs that already do that and work together as a country to share the responsibilities of asylum seekers and migrants who are crossing the border. What we should not do is what Vice President Harris is doing, and that's pretend the border is secure or do what Governor Newsom is doing and make over-the-top allegations of human trafficking. But we also shouldn't be intentionally creating chaos just to make political statements. So, um, I don't know. Uh, the the bottom line is there needs to be a federal solution to this problem. Otherwise, this circus is just going to continue. The mayor of New York City, uh, Eric Adams, not at all helpful in terms of calming the situation down, said this yesterday in terms of the options that he's pursuing to put an end to this. We have this heavy influx, and that's why our legal team is looking at what legal challenges we could do with Texas, as well as how do we properly ensure everyone receive the necessary services they deserve. And we're going beyond our call of duty. Uh, what we're doing around health care, what we're doing around education, uh, we're going to make sure that everyday New Yorkers get what they deserve as well. So basically, they're leaving the door open to um, some sort of legal action against Abbott here. The other thing that Adams left the door open to was putting these migrants that are coming to New York on cruise ships because New York City's shelters are so overwhelmed by this migrant crisis that the mayor is considering using cruise ships. He said that on... uh, on another radio station on Sunday, so we'll see if that if that if that occurs. I don't know that it will, uh, but it's going to be very interesting. We'll take your calls in just a minute. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. The theory is that cruise ships could help alleviate some of the stress on the shelter system uh, because there's a lot of people that are not getting the services they need um, and because of all these migrants that are coming here. By the way, speaking of cruise ships, this is not at all related to uh, the migrant issue, but they're actually selling rooms on these luxury cruise ships. I'm going to tell you about that in in a second, but a couple of people wanted to weigh in on this. Let me get to as many calls as we can first, but remind me if I don't tell you about this, I got to bring that to your attention. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Um, what the Democrats are pulling, are doing, reminds me of a Seinfeld show. I'm sure you remember it. Where I think it was a Korean salon, and they were make, and Eileen was her name. I haven't seen the show in years, and Eileen uh, was there, and, and she felt they were making fun of her speaking in their language, in Korean, I think it was. So she told him to George's father. Now, George's father um, 
spoke Korean because he used to, in the wartime he was stationed in Korea at some point. So he came along to see if that's what's happening. And that's exactly what was happening. The Korean women in the salon were making fun of Eileen. So he starts talking to them in their language, telling them what he overheard. So instead of being embarrassed, he said, what? You can spy on me? You spy on me? That's what they did. That's what Democrats are doing. <laughs> they're doing everything illegal. They're, let, they're letting in uh, terrorists without checking. They're letting in COVID without checking. They're letting in uh, uh, fentanyl and 110 or 140,000 kids, people die a year. That's fine. But when you bring it to their door, you said the Texas shouldn't uh, have to do it all by themselves. Why should they have to do any of it at all? It's all not constitutional. So instead of being embarrassed, that, you know, starting with uh, Eric Adams and 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 then with uh, uh, um, Vice President and so on, they're not embarrassed. They're they're attacking backwards. It, it, to me, I see the exact type of thing where when the Korean women were caught, they said, "You spy on me." They got angry instead of embarrassed. Yeah, well, uh, well, point, uh, well, well put, uh, Charles. It was Elaine, not Eileen. That was a fine episode, but um, I think it's a little bit more uh, complicated than that. I mean, look, uh, I'm a New York taxpayer, right? I want greater border security. I I don't want to solve the world's – look, there are refugees from all over the world that want to come here. And as a practical matter, the United States can't take in everybody, even though they're fleeing uh, horrible places like Venezuela or wherever else – Ukraine, for instance, we can't take in everybody. So why I, as I, as a New York City taxpayer, why should I be forced to shoulder the burden for a lot of these other things? And I think Adams is right that we may have to review this right to shelter law. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. By the way, I just want to bring this to your attention before we continue with your calls, is a luxury cruise ship is selling rooms. Now, this has nothing to do with Eric Adams wanting to send these migrants on cruise ships. But a luxury cruise ship is selling rooms to those who want to live on the open sea. The cheapest option, cheapest option, a tiny studio with a Murphy bed. How much do you think it is? Buying, not renting, buying. How much do you think it is? One million dollars. Can you imagine? It, I mean, look, I imagine most of us listening, most of you listening to me right now don't have a million dollars to spend willy-nilly on a room on a cruise ship. But even if you did, would that appeal to you to buy a room on a luxury cruise ship? I, I would. I look, I'm all for going on a cruise for a week or so. But to live on a luxury cruise ship? I don't know. Not for me. 800 848 But if your childhood dream was to live aboard a cruise, then private residential shipmaker Storylines has built an environmentally conscious 753-foot vessel brimming with all sorts of luxury features and a nonstop itinerary. The MV Narrative, which is powered exclusively by liquid natural gas propulsion, will pass through Hundreds of destinations across six continents, including a month spent off the coast of Italy. Port stops are planned for every one to five days. The ship includes 547 residences, 
with 20 dining and bar venues, pools, a bowling alley, a hydroponic garden farm, an open-air fitness center for racket sports, a yoga studio and track, and residences range, the cheapest one is a million dollars, and the most expensive residence on one of these, uh, on, on this boat, on this cruise ship, $8 million. $8 million. I do wonder if they're going to be able to sell these. I, I don't know. I bet you they will. Really? Are there yeah, because, that many people that want to buy these? Because this is a type of thing, you know, it, it's fine that a company actually actually was able to do this because people have been doing this for years where they've been living on a cruise ship because there's cruises that go on for six months. So let's say, how much do you think it would cost to stay in a retirement facility for a year? And they go, well, I'll take that money and spend $30,000 and go on a cruise for six months. So the, this ship, the ship that we're talking about, the MV Narrative, is set to sail with its maiden voyage, a 1,000-night maiden voyage in 2024. Um, if you had the money, would you want to go on this? Would you want to, to take a 1,000-night maiden, uh, not maiden voyage, but any voyage I mean, on a ship like that's this? That's three years. Yeah, it's three years. It's <laughs> three a long years. time. So do to I me, wanna, it's like a prison sentence. Right, so I'm saying, do you want to be on this vessel where you can't really? I mean, I guess you go in the ports well, here and, and there. Yeah, I mean, you, again, they have a, a, a port stop every one to five days. Right. It's not like you're out in the middle of the ocean for three years. But I don't. I don't think I'd want to because a, I don't want to travel anywhere anyway. And it sounds fun at first, but like you know, right. I can I can do six months, but three years. That's a long time. I imagine these are pretty seasoned travelers and people right. that really like um, like cruising in general. Um, how about you, Mister Kenneth Model? Where where are, uh, where are you on this question? I, I don't think I'd I'd live on a ship for three years. Mm. No shot. Yeah. Plus, I, who's to say that the ship won't have any sort of technical difficulties within a, within a three year span? Well, I mean, you can't say that. Of you, you could go on a cruise ship for a week or a month. And it would be the same situation. You I mean, I know, but three years, like, that's, I don't know, that's too too excessive for me. Yeah. Well, and again, I guess you go and you pull into Italy or the other, you know, five continents that you're visiting, and you have an option to, you know, you have the opportunity to get the boat fixed if there's something wrong with it. But I just, I wouldn't want to commit to three years living on a boat like this. I, I wouldn't either, but I do think there are, are there a lot of retired people and all they do is travel. But uh, so why not have, just travel I mean, forever? I, I am I am curious how they're going to do selling this. What, what's your take? Do you think they're going to be able to sell this out? 800-848-9222. I want to make clear these residences are going for between one million and eight million dollars. By the way, the last thing I want to say on the migrant issue, and then I'll take your calls if you want to comment. Um, you know the mayor. Mayor Adams is attacking some of these governors. The city had a very interesting uh, piece four days ago. That's a uh, a great publication that covers government and politics in New York. Um, a lot of the migrants that are they're saying that even if they were not bused to New York City, they would come to New York City on their own. And they the city quotes somebody saying. 
since I was a kid, I always dreamt of New York. This is one of the refugees. He um, he says that um, he would come here. And I think a lot of other folks fit that same description. So it is interesting. All right, 800-848-9222. John is on Staten Island. Hello, John. Hey, Frank, how are you? John Vito. Uh, John Vito, excuse me. Nice to talk to you. I, I want to try to, to meet you one of these days. Anyway, uh, I, I, we could talk a lot about this, uh, the first object and the other one. Look, I have to say this, so just to put in, put in people's mind what really comes in a reasonable way. When Mike Carson first came here, landed here, they jumped ship. They were 19 years old. They had to get married in order to stay here and be permanent. Okay? Now, that's one case. Now, what's going on over here, I don't know, just to say travesty is really, is really, I don't know, nothing. What's going on is a craziness with these people coming in. There is no reason. We can't even take care of your own problem. We have, it is a family, right, in New York. We can't take care of 50% of the problem that we got, and that's because of bad management on top. What we had, what we have right now, it's absurd. It can't go on like this. And what we have in the White House, like somebody says, the creature, this is it's a, it's, a, it's out of this world what's going on. Right. Well, As let's we, try not to call names, John Vito. Thank you. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. And there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it. But baby, baby, I know it. You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feeling. You've lost that love and feeling. Now it's gone. This, of course, is a song you know well and a voice you know well. This is uh, Tully Savalas, very well known from uh, Kojak, among many other things, singing uh, that love and feeling. You know, I've been in touch with uh, his daughter, Tully Savalas' daughter, Ariana, who's actually a pretty great talent in her own right. John Katzmatidis actually put her in touch. I mean, I'd say John, John just knows everybody, especially if they happen to be Greek. And uh, and she actually expressed some interest in coming on the show. So I don't know if we're going to do that tomorrow or uh, a little bit later in the week. But uh, I'm looking forward to that uh, discussion with Ariana Savalas. 800-848-9222. Talking about a bunch of issues, including this luxury cruise ship where you can purchase a room for a thousand-day voyage. For between a million dollars and eight million dollars. I'm not sure what happens after this thousand day voyage. If you get any equity, if you if you I don't know, if you get to go on the next cruise or if this is like a lifetime 
opportunity to travel on cruise ships or if it's just a three-year thing. I'm not sure. I'd have to look into a bit, this a bit further. But the maiden voyage is going to be 2024. I'm curious, if you had the money, would you want to do this? And my answer is no. What about you? 800-848-9222. Obi Murray, a uh, frequent uh, contributor of, on this program and occasional co-host when he's uh, sober enough to uh, stumble in here at 1 a.m., uh, is, is on the line with uh, with some thoughts on this. Hello, Obi, you were just on a cruise, right? <laughs> I was. Labor Day weekend. I went to Bermuda. No hurricanes, though, so we lucked out on that one. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but, Frank, if you have to ask about the money, you shouldn't be thinking about it, buddy. That's the first thing. Okay. Oh, that's fair. That's but fair. The other part is a thousand days on a cruise. Is that what you want to do for a thousand days? No family, unless they meet you at port somewhere. That's, you're cut off from everybody. You get internet, you get some phones. But, uh, you know, you, you, you do that kind of cruise. You go on for a while, you go off, leave your belongings. I've, I've run into people on the cruises who are between homes at times who go on three and four cruises in a row. I think Alex was talking about that a few minutes ago on your show. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nothing unusual in that sense. It's it's like a timeshare somewhere else possibly too for that period of time. You had a maiden voyage, as you said, do you have the equity or not becomes the question. So So I mean it sounds like because of the isolation from the rest of the world, you wouldn't want to go on this either. Not for a thousand days. No. No, no it's too much. It's no, too no. much. Yeah, no, a week it's is great good. to be able to I, I walked out my door, and 10 minutes later, I was on, on the cruise to Bermuda for my house. Yeah, no, that well, that's great. the benefit of living in a convenient location. Um, for that well, one. <laughs> yeah. Obi, thank you. We'll and, see you soon and, in and studio. The, 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 the migrants trying to go on there, too, I think would be the challenge of the isolation, though. They're not near any services, no matter what they put on that ship. Right. Well, It's great for housing, and we have to figure out where the city can put everybody. But that bigger picture, as you point out quite a bit, is... The city wasn't built for this, with a sanctuary city and with a right to housing for everybody, for shelter. They were written at different times where, where people trickled in into New York from right. when they came across the right. border, went through the process. When I was in El Paso in the Army, I used to see it all the time, right across the border. I used to go, to, go across the border to Juarez on the weekends, play chess, have a few drinks. And um, the border was different then, but you didn't have this mass influx of, of people coming across the border on a regular basis. There was a tremendous burden on the community of El Paso back then. But compared to today, it's even worse. So what do you think? Like, Obviously, I think a lot of people want better border security, and a lot of people want a more, for lack of a better description, a more organized system of how to handle asylum seekers from places like Venezuela. What do you think a better system might be, whether we're talking a federal solution or... uh, or, Part of it is... Is the process, though. There's not enough judges to process things. Right, it takes that right. much longer. Imagine also in Texas, if all these court dates are in Texas, everyone has to be housed there during this entire time in Texas. There's not federal facilities for all of this right. to put everybody in for this period of time. That's why the governor was trying to split up the burden across the country. But if they had this set up in different ways, why not all those uh, uh, military bases we closed? We could use those across the, across the country, too, in the sense, not in camps, not in tournament camps by any means. But where they have big open facilities, you have housing, you have opportunity to put medical services in there, you put the courts on the federal lands if you need to, and you could, you could do it that way, too. And you process people, make quicker decisions, and then you either fly them out of the country or they stay based upon the decision of the judge. Mm. Now, uh, Obi, thank you. You're making way too it. much sense to be in charge of anything. 800-848-9222. Jerry in Oak Ridge. Jerry, would you go on one of these cruises? Oh, hell yeah, Frank. I, you know, I spent from 1982 to 1988 on a, a 
291-foot submarine uh, for six years. So you're definitely straight. I'd go for three years on a big old cruise ship. All right. Hey, I guess the, clearly there's a there's a market for this. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. The, re- the reason I called is about the cruise ship. Um, no, I wouldn't go because I'm single and I wouldn't want to be alone for three years. But Well, I mean, me what's to stop you from meeting people either on the cruise ship or in all these ports of call? Well, I would assume that most of those people are already hooked up. And there's not a lot of uh, choice compared to a, a city of 8 million, you know? Well, but, yeah, I mean, unless you end oh, up on I, the love boat. Yeah. What that is? Can you hear me? Uh, barely, barely. Matt yeah, plays once he gets a hold of the controls. He's dangerous. Okay. Let me ask you something if I'm not uh, understanding something. Do you actually own... The room, like, or is it only for that one thousand? Well, I, I that's what I'm trying to figure out. I think you own it um, th- because I can't imagine you're going to spend a million to eight million dollars for essentially a thousand day hotel room uh, with with right. travel. I think right. you own it, but uh, I want to get a little. I'm looking for a little confirmation on this uh because it's uh it's not it's not clear to me based on the articles on this okay so if you own it two questions first of all what is going to maintenance fee going to be like on condos i I mean imagine a maintenance fee on a on a cruise ship you know yeah they're calling these residential ships so um i i I don't know i don't know it's very it's very uh very interesting all these know, articles mind, but... on these ships uh, spend a lot of time focused on the amenities, but they don't really get into the the business details. So uh, right. well, maybe all the amenities cost you uh, per you know thing. You you got to pay each time you use it. It could be cost a lot of money during the month to do anything there, other than just sit in your room. They don't say that. Also, can you sell this room to someone else? Yeah, that, that's a good question, uh, and I don't have answers to. To any of no, these, I'm just asking, just so you can get the answer. Yeah, I, I yeah, no, that's that's, that's good. Them, that's know? good. Thank you very much, there, uh, original Rick. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Hey, I want to remind you, if you haven't already done so, please listen to my latest edition of the Racket Report. Uh, my guest was Michael Franzis. Now, yesterday, I played you a clip. Michael Franzis was a captain in the Colombo crime family. His father was the underboss of the Colombo crime family, uh, a legitimate tough guy, at John Sonny Francis. Yesterday, I played you a clip of him talking about what it was like growing up the son of such a powerful gangster. But after seeing what your father goes through, why would you ever want to join the mob? I asked Michael Francis that question. Tell me about when you when you decided to become a member of uh, the mob and pursue that life yourself. What happened was my dad gets convicted after three other trials. He gets convicted on a federal case for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. Uh, he tells me straight out that he was framed. He said, Mike, I'm innocent of this, uh, these charges. I'm no bank robber. Why I believed him, he was always honest with me. But more than that, Frank, the four witnesses that testified him were all drug addicts. My father, from the time I was five years old, preached against drugs. He hated anything to do with drugs. He used to make up stories 
uh, about, you know, bad things that would happen to people that took drugs. So I knew he, he would have never associated with these people. So he goes to jail for a 50-year prison sentence. And Joe Colombo at that time kind of took me under his wing. He was the boss. And, you know, I met a lot of my daddy's friends, and they said, Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. So I go see Dad in Leavenworth, and I, I'm, I'm 19 years old, 20 years old. And I said, Dad, I can't go to school. You're going to die in here. You're 50 years old. you got a 50-year prison sentence. The way they hate you, you you're going to die in here. And it was at that meeting in Leavenworth where he knew my mind was made up. And he said, look, if you're going to be on the street, then you got to do it the right way. And he proposed me for membership at that point in time. If you want to hear the whole thing, you've got to listen to the podcast. You can subscribe to the Racket Report with Frank Morano. That's uh, just the Racket Report with Frank Morano. Get it on any podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere, and just search that, the Racket Report with Frank Morano, and uh, you'll hear the latest edition with Michael Franzese. And I'm working on something very big for later this week. So if you subscribe to it, you'll automatically get it sent uh, to your phone with uh, with no problem. Now, uh, a couple of other quick things I want to get to. I didn't have an opportunity to talk about uh, Saturday's softball game. You know, we're trying to raise some money for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, and uh, we have this big walk coming up on Sunday. And if you haven't already done so, please make a contribution to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. That's walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. You know, I try to keep my weekends pretty free and pretty much, you know, dedicated to spending time with my family. So I'm pretty careful with uh, the events that I commit to participating in on the weekend. So I'm really looking forward to this this walk slash run on Sunday. Hopefully I'll see a lot of you there. But if you haven't already made a contribution, please make a contribution because it's important to me. I wouldn't be getting up early on Sunday, one of the handful of one of the two days that I don't have to uh, get up at a weird time to do the radio program to participate if this wasn't important. So I'm asking for your help. Go to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. So what we did on Saturday is we did a charity softball game to raise some money for this particular cause, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. And we had a good good group of players. There was a, a big disparity of uh, of playing ability you had guys like me that were okay. I would characterize myself as above average. You had some people that were average, some people that were below average. Some guys were great. And when I mean guys, I use them in the gender neutral sense. My cousin Jessica, who came down from uh, Bethlehem or came up from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania to play in the game, she just graduated college on a softball scholarship. She was the best player on the on the field. She was incredible. She was great. And uh, what we did was we it was basically a formal, not actually formal. It was basically a glorified pickup game where we had two captains, and I tried to pick two players of equal ability. And my friend Brian Silverstein played. My friend John Tobacco played, and they were the two captains of each opposing team. Because I felt like it, it, and initially we were going to make my wife and I the captains because uh, I feel like Rachel and I, we have played with everybody. We know how well everyone plays. But 
Well, we decided not to. So we made John and Brian the the captains. We called Brian Silverstein's team the BS artists, and we called John Tobacco's team the tobacconists. And um, Brian picked me as the first pick, which he should not have done because there were a lot of people that were better players than me. I don't remember who John picked. Uh, I don't think John drafted well. He had some good players, including my cousin Jessica, who was on his team, but uh, Brian, in part because I was guiding him a little bit, he made much better draft picks. So we got off. I played for the BS artists, shockingly, and we got off to an early lead. And we did what we did. We had 11 players on each team. So we did 10 players in the field plus one EH, a player that would just bat but not uh, but not hit. Uh, excuse me, they'd just bat but not play the field. And we were um, – we got off to an early lead. I think we scored something like 10 runs in the first two innings. And that's how slow-pitch softball is. If you can get – it's always the first two innings where there's a lot of scoring. Then everybody learns where people hit it. Uh, everybody learns where – you know, what the story is. Things calm down a little bit. But we got off to an early lead. And then the tobacconists had one good inning. They scored seven runs later in the game. But ultimately, I think the final score was about 15 to 10. Um, And we played nine innings. There was a big dispute over whether we should play seven innings or whether we should play nine innings. We ultimately ended up playing. uh, And then we were going to compromise at eight. But uh, there was a consensus for for nine innings. So we did that. Uh, Christian Arnold, our former producer, played. It was good to see him again. And uh, Christian Matos, who was uh, formerly a, a board op here at the radio station, he played as well. It was good to see him. And uh, Vincent Gentili, who's a politician from the New York area for a long time, he was the umpire. And he did a good job as the, uh, as the umpire. I, uh, I played pretty well. You know what it is? I, my, I, my weak spot as a ball player has always been my throwing arm. And I could do everything else on the baseball field except throw the ball. I'm almost like Mackie Sasser or that catcher in Major League Two who's based on Mackie Sasser. I cannot throw the ball. It goes all over the place. So, And I'm conscious of the fact that I can't throw the ball well. So I end up not practicing my throwing because I'm so embarrassed at how poorly I throw the ball. Now, the nice thing is when you play first base, you don't have to throw the ball. So... Um, I'm warming up before the game with my wife because my wife knows that my Achilles heel is my throwing ability. I'm thinking, all right, she won't judge me too much for not being able to throw. And then another fellow that was playing, Joe Ridley, who they call the Riddler, he um, he said, all right, hey, let me warm up with you guys. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, he's going to see how terrible I throw. And, of course, I'm throwing the ball over all over the place. But uh, I played first base, so there were no major throwing errors on my part during the game. I... Um, I think I reached base in every plate appearance. So I think I reached base five times. I'm not sure how many of those were genuine hits and how many of them were were, were reached on in errors uh, because a lot of my balls went into the outfield. And uh, Sal Greco, the former police officer, who's now moving to Florida today, by the way. I think he's probably listening to us as he's driving down to Florida right now. Uh, he played left field. Obviously, he's in great shape. He looks like Roman Reigns. He looks like a bodybuilder. Not the best fielder in the world when it comes to softball. So I think he made a few errors on balls that I hit out there, and I don't think it was intentional. In fact, it remarked one observer, he was wearing his Sal Greco did nothing wrong T-shirt, 
It remarked one observer to say to me, Sal Greco did nothing wrong except play left field. So you get a pretty good idea of Sal's abilities in left field. But one listener, Tom from Staten Island, he came. He played for our team, the BS artist. He was our pitcher. And while some people were complaining about his pitching, uh, he did really well, I thought, and uh, clearly really delivered. And uh, Pete in Staten Island, who's a big caller to our show, he came and watched the game and made a contribution, which was uh, very, very generous. And then my mother hosted everybody afterwards, and it was uh, it was a very, very nice event. Uh, so thanks to everybody that came. Thanks to everybody that donated. It was a lot of fun. My friend Rich comes, and he texts me the day before, hey, because he initially told me he couldn't come. Texts me the day before. He says, hey, it turns out I am going to be able to come. My wife's made other arrangements. And um, he brings his baby, who's uh, maybe a couple of months younger than Carmine, and nobody to watch the baby. So when you do that, I mean, that's got to be one of the most inconsiderate things that you can do. Because essentially you turn everyone around you into a babysitter. So my mom, fortunately, was there. She watched his baby for a little bit. My uh, Aunt Madeline and Uncle Joe came to watch their, their granddaughter, Jessica, my cousin. But we're playing... And there's basically a ground ball hit to my friend Rich. Basically a routine ground ball. I mean, it was hard. It was hit hard, but it was a routine ground ball. He should have made the play. Not only does Rich not make the play, but he, and yes, yes, I'm speaking of a, a, of a gentleman. He gets hit in the finger with the ball and breaks a nail and needs to come out of the game. And I'm just thinking to myself, who does this? Who, first of all, did not have his own glove. I had to provide a glove for him. And then gets hit in the, the finger and needs to come out of the game? I, I, thought, I thought I was being punked. I was waiting for somebody to have a hidden camera to see my reaction. I mean, come on. Come on. I, I've, been, I've been gushing blood and not come out of the game. And then a little bit later, uh, the uh, one of the players on the other team, he... Made up, he got hit in the hand the same way, and he says, "Yes, unlike Rich, I will not be needing to leave the game." So it was something that everybody uh, had a lot of fun with. I felt bad for Christian Arnold; he was running the bases, and one of the players on our team, very good player, Audra, she's got she's got an arm. I wish I could throw like her. She throws the ball. She's trying to make a play, and she th- hits Christian in the head. With a line drive that she's throwing, but it, it was thrown very hard. And Christian didn't ask to come out of the game. He, he shook it off. Everyone was really concerned about that. So, uh, so that was that. It was really successful and uh, a lot of fun. At least I thought it was fun. And uh, I'm looking forward to playing in Sid Rosenberg's charity softball game on Thursday, especially now that I had an opportunity to warm up a bit. So that'll be interesting. If you're interested in that, by the way, that's going to be this Thursday night on Staten Island. And uh, I have uh, I can I can send you the link if you want to donate. It's going to be at the Staten Island University Hospital ballpark in uh, St. George. That's uh, it's only twenty dollars, but it's going to be a lot of fun. It goes to charity and uh, a lot of people are playing. The Staten Island Borough President Vito Fasella is playing. John Tobacco from Newsmax is playing. I think Lou Ruffino from the Bernie and Sid show. He's going to be there. Sid himself is going to be there. It's going to be an interesting crowd of folks that come. So I'm looking forward to that. All right. We'll go through uh, the mail in just a moment. If you want to send me an email to be read, try to keep it somewhat short. 
Send it to frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Well, Mr. Burns had done it, the power plant had won it, with Roger Clemens clucking all the while. Mike Sosha's tragic illness made us smile, while Wade Boggs lay unconscious on the barroom tile. We're talking softball, from Maine to San Diego, talking softball, Manningly and Conseco, Ken Griffey's grotesquely swollen jaw. Steve Sachs and his running with the law. We're talking Homer, Ozzy and the Straw. I love this song. Uh, this is from a great Simpsons episode where uh, Mr. Burns, the owner of the nuclear power plant, recruits a bunch of major league players to work in the power plant so that they could be ringers in the company's softball game. And this this song, which plays at the end of the episode, Talking Softball, is a takeoff on that classic song, uh, Talking Baseball. And if you've seen the episode, you realize how funny the lyrics are of this song. It is absolutely delightful. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. Ah, but first, it is time for... Let's go email first, shall we? This is from Joanne. Uh, This is from uh, last week, a week ago today. Enjoyed this morning. The rumble of thunder woke me up just in time for 1 a.m. And Obi, oh, I think she means Obi Murray, who you just heard. It was lighthearted. He made you laugh. A nice break from those guys who work there often don't reply or do and disinterested. And the turnover. Maybe the training period should be stocking shelves at Mr. C's supermarket. That will perk them up. It is good that you spoke with passion about public service, be it the military or other options. But I was amused after your tone in speaking of HRH, oh, His Royal Highness or Her Royal Highness, and the monarchy and the world speaks of her commitment to service. Need to catch up on sleep tonight. That's from Joanne. Thank you very much. All right. Well, any response there, uh, Mr. Matt Blaze? Or are you going to do your typical not responding? Yes, because we're just sitting around here waiting That's to right. respond. I have That's nothing right. else to do. Yes. Uh, okay. This is a, an envelope. This is from Anna, and it's got a cat on the outside as the envelope sealer. Okay. This is an article and with a post-it note that says, from Anna, and then it includes her email address. Oh, this is great. This is that pickleball article in The New Yorker. I read the beginning of this, but because I didn't have a login to The New Yorker, I did not get to read the whole article. I haven't played pickleball yet. I have a pickleball set, and I'm looking to start. I uh, played a little bit with um, with uh, Nick, uh, my friend Nick, recently. We were just uh, using the paddle and the ball just to see how it bounced, but we didn't go through the whole formal game. This is an email from Maxine. Maxine writes, subject, 
love the debates. Oh, really? Then you're in for a treat tomorrow. Good morrow, Frank. This was such a wonderful experience, both as a listener and participant. Gino was an excellent debate partner. I learned so much over those several minutes listening to his rebuttal. Great exercise for thinking on my feet, especially beyond midnight. Thank you and Matt to all my best, Maxine from Manhattan. She was one of the better debaters from uh, from last week, that's for sure. All right, this is from the world of Facebook. Uh, this is from Olivia. Olivia writes, greetings, Frank. This was sent earlier today. Uh, delighted that you'll have Whitley Strieber on your program. He's a dear friend, and he also knows Ed Bell Bruno, who you interviewed earlier. Great stuff, great interviews. I'm new to your program, but have been enjoying them immensely. Warm regards to you and your lovely family. Well, that is awfully nice. Another snail mail here. This is a lengthy piece here. Well, okay. Uh, this is from Jacqueline. Dear Frank, a week or so ago, we spoke about macaroni and cheese on the air, and I told you about my best recipe. I'm including it here, along with copies of all my recipes for macaroni and cheese, which may come in handy as Carmine's palate develops. Oh, this is interesting. And she goes on about her some of her MNC methods. I'm so glad I found your show. What astounds me about you is that you can tell a story that may be essentially boring, but you bring it to life with your delivery and punchy style. Isn't that nice? Your vocabulary is enviable. Hope you enjoy the recipes and the Griffin cigars I recommended. That is awfully nice. Well, until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, still, this uh, we are celebrating our first week in Baltimore. Doesn't sound as good. I like Baltimore. I like that. You know what I always picture whenever I um, say the word Baltimore? One, that line in Chattanooga Choo Choo, the great uh, Glenn Miller song, where, uh, you know, uh, read a magazine and then you're in at the door. Dinner at the diner. You know, where there's a line about Baltimore. The way they, they sing at the Glenn Miller Orchestra sings that line about Baltimore. It's cool. Also, there's a film, as good as it gets. It's about 23 years old, 25 years old. Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt, Greg Kinnear, Cuba Gooding Jr. I think um, there's some other interesting people in it. But anything that Jack says is so cool, right? He just has such a cool way of speaking. And there's a, a there's a line in that picture 
where Jack Nicholson is complaining to Helen Hunt about a request from Cuba Gooding Jr. And Jack Nicholson says to Helen Hunt, he wants me to take his car and his client to Baltimore. It's just the way that he says Baltimore. It's so cool. So I know I was corrected yesterday that the the way the Baltimoreans pronounce it is Baltimore. I can't do it. I need that T. I need that T-I. All right. But anyway, one other piece of mail that uh, that we didn't have an opportunity to get to is from one of our new listeners on WCBM in Baltimore, which we're very proud to be on. And he writes me. Hi, Frank. Being a Marylander for many years, rather than Maryland, the local pronunciation is Maryland. Maybe you already know that, but just giving you the information to do with as you wish and not a criticism. So I think I appreciated the politeness with which that email was sent. And here was my response. Thanks very much. In 1776, the musical, not the year, Samuel Chase and some of the other characters in that show pronounce it my way. I realize it may be a bit antiquated, but I'm trying to bring it back. Being on WCPM is a huge step in the right direction towards my mission. With that in mind, here is a conversation from the musical 1776 William Daniels, the man who has the greatest transatlantic accent that Broadway has ever seen, having a conversation with Samuel Chase, the congressional delegate from the state of, or the colony at the time, of Maryland. Here's William Daniels as John Adams. If you thought we could beat the Redcoats, would Maryland say yay to independence? See, it's my way. Maryland. Maryland. I gotta go with William Daniels. If William Daniels is wrong when it comes to pronouncing things, I don't want to be right. Meantime, do you know what we missed yesterday? We missed a tremendous holiday. Um, Yesterday was actually National Talk Like a Pirate Day. Um, That is big. Do you realize what I missed in terms of being able to talk like a pirate for a whole show? We we missed out. We need to do a better job screening the national days in time to get in on that. Because obviously you can't do it today. Can't be walking around saying, ahoy, mateys, all day. I'd be a day late and a dollar short. Or a day, a day late and a gold doubloon short. Just think of how great it would have been. You, all day yesterday, I could have walked around talking like this. Everyone stay calm. We are taking over the ship. I am us. <laughs> this ship cannot be crewed by two men. You'll never make it out of the bay. Son, I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. Savvy. So, I have um, done a little homework because I have marked National Talk Like a Pirate Day on my calendar for next year. And I'm going to spend the next 364 days preparing for National Talk Like a Pirate Day next year. So if you are in my boat and you're wanting to talk like a pirate because it's fun, 
Uh, it's about a lot more than just saying yo-ho and ahoy. Here are some tips, and I owe this to the newsletter Morning Brew. If you want to know how to talk like a pirate at work, now don't do this today because you're going to be like one of these people that sell that keeps their Christmas lights up in mid-January, and nobody likes those people. And nobody likes the people that talk like a pirate the day after talk like a pirate day. But write this down for next year. The key to talking like a pirate is substitute me for I. For example, me thinks these sales estimates are a little aggressive. See? Leverage the five A's. What are the five A's? This is elemental for National Talk Like a Pirate Day. Ahoy. Avast. R. I, and when addressing a figure of authority, I, I. And then the last thing, and this is perhaps the most important aspect of National Talk Like a Pirate Day. Confidence. 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 Being a pirate is all about having conviction. Even if your mutiny fails and results in you getting cleaved to the brisket. Don't look that up. Uh, my thanks to the Morning Brew. Uh, terrific newsletter for their assistance with that. Now, um, also, I want to thank the listener that sent me this article. I had actually seen this, but it came once again to the forefront of my email consciousness. More and more online art communities have begun to ban AI-generated images. So if you haven't followed this, and if you're one of our new Baltimoreans that is listening to the show, I have become obsessed with creating AI art. Now, what is AI art? Artificial intelligence. Again, I'm concerned about artificial intelligence. I'm pretty sure that this is how human civilization will end when artificial intelligence decides to go to war with us like they do in Terminator, like they do in this and in that and in this. At the very least, I'm pretty sure that all of us will be unemployed once we're able to be replaced by artificially intelligent robots. That being said, I cannot ignore the fact that it is a remarkable amount of fun to create AI art using text prompts. So there's a whole bunch of apps and websites that do this and i have been having a whale of a time on this so what you do is you you type in a text prompt and it creates an image and you tell it what you want you i want it in the style of monet i want it like a movie poster i want it retro i want it mosaic i want it like an oil painting i want it Modern. I want it um, hyper detailed. I want it using cubism. I want it using pop art. Whatever it is you want, you can kind of craft your specific settings and it comes up. So it's a lot of fun. But these these art communities online are starting to ban this AI art. And I have to say, I don't blame them. I don't think it's fair for people that are actually real artists to have to compete with computers. I don't think that's right. I mean, if you're going to my Facebook page or my Instagram and you see some art and I acknowledge to you that's not something I created, it's something a computer created at my text prompt, that's one thing. 
Or if there's a competition just for AI-created art, that's one thing. But to have human-created art be viewed the same way that AI-created art is, eh, it's, it's not the same. It, I don't like that. So I don't blame these online artist communities for, uh, for banning the stuff. Now, um, by the way, if you want to see some of my latest AI art, I'm not sharing all of it, but I just shared one on Facebook. You could view it at facebook.com slash moranofan. The text prompt for this piece of art, a statue of limitations. Okay? A statue of limitations. You want to see what uh, the computer came up with? Not statute. A statue of limitations. You know what I wonder? I'm going to try and create, now that I did this one, I'm going to try and create a the statute of liberty and see what, what comes up there. I'm going to see how that goes. Now, so that's there. If you go to my Instagram, at Morano Vision, I created a Staten Island fairy hawk. It doesn't look like a bird. I will let you see what it looks like. You can see that at Morano Vision. Hey, are you familiar with the podcast Serial? I never listened to Serial, but uh, a lot of people I know... Are, oh, oh. so in terms of National Days, before we get to Serial, today, just so you're not a day late and a dollar short, you can get a head start on the day. Number one, National Pepperoni Pizza Day. Okay. National Fried Rice Day. National IT Professionals Day. So if you have an IT professional in your life, I think you got to get them a card or something. National um, String Cheese Day. I like string cheese. And, oh, this is what explains today's Google Doodle. Today is National Voter Registration Day, um, which changes annually, but it's usually in September, and it's uh, all about urging citizens to register to vote, which I do as well. I uh, I always urge people to uh, register to vote. And, you know, I go back and forth about whether or not voting registration should be mandatory or not. Uh, But uh, ultimately, whether it is or it is not, as it is in Australia, by the way, voting is mandatory in Australia or you face a fine. But it's certainly a good idea. Even if you end up choosing not to vote, at least you registered. You have that option if you want to go vote later. So that's certainly an important reminder. So make sure you go and vote. Anyway. Uh, what I was going to say on the subject of Serial, Serial was a very popular podcast. There were various seasons of Serial. And the first season was all about this crime um, supposedly committed by Adnan Syed. He was convicted of murder. He had been serving a life sentence for the 1999 murder of his high school classmate. Well, now he's made it out of prison. In a remarkable reversal, Adnan Syed walked out of prison yesterday. What day is today? Is today Tuesday? Today's Tuesday. Yesterday, for the first time since he was a teenager, he spent... 23 years of his life fighting his conviction on charges that he murdered his former high school girlfriend, a case that was chronicled in the first season of this hit podcast, 
cereal. Um, this is incredible. Judge Melissa Finn of Baltimore City Circuit Court vacated the conviction in the interests of justice and fairness, finding that prosecutors had failed to turn over evidence that could have helped Mr. Syed at trial and discovered new evidence that could have affected the outcome of his case. Prosecutors have 30 days to decide if they'll proceed with a new trial or drop the charges against Mr. Syed, who was ordered to serve home detention until then. So this is big. Out of prison for the first time in 23 years. Here was the city-state's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, on Adnan Syed being freed. Since the inception of my administration, I've made it clear that the sole mission of my office is to safeguard communities in Baltimore through the effective prosecution of crime. And in order to fulfill this mission, our prosecutors have been sworn to not only aggressively advocate on behalf of victims of crime, but when the evidence exists, to exonerate those that have been falsely accused or convicted. The public has to know that justice is the only barometer of success for my office. And justice over convictions is not only our mantra, but our mission. I never listened to Serial, so I'm not sure how compelling a case they made for this guy being freed. But apparently it was pretty compelling. You know, it's funny. I do uh, watch the television program Only Murders in the Building. It's really great. I can't recommend it highly enough. I think it's fun. I think it's mysterious. I think it's funny. Great acting. Great music. Great. It's shot well. It's edited well. It's really just terrific. But in one episode, there's an arrest made because of a podcast that several of the characters are doing. And the police officer says to the person doing the podcast, I can't believe this is how we solve crimes now. And I have to say, it's a little amazing, isn't it? To think that this is how we get people out of prison now? With podcasts? I'm wondering, you know, there's a podcast of this show. You can search The Other Side of Midnight wherever you get your podcast. Please subscribe. Who could we get out of prison? I feel like that would be great publicity for the show. Do me a favor. If you're in prison now and you were wrongfully convicted, email me or have somebody email me and we'll we'll do whatever we can to free you if you're really innocent. If you're just one of these people that is guilty or is was overcharged and you're not really innocent, don't email me. If you're for real innocent and we can do something to prove on the air that you're innocent, email me and we'll... We'll we'll get you out of prison and we'll get some great publicity for for the show. Uh, Frank Morano at WABCRadio.com. But it is interesting. I'm eager to see what the prosecutors do here. If they're going to go forward with a new trial or if they're going to drop the charges altogether. Uh, if you have thoughts on that or if you've seen Serial, 800-848-9222. Uh, not seen, but heard Serial if it's worth uh, worth listening to. I'm curious. Let me say hello to Mike in Lake George. Hello, Mike. Good morrow, Frank. Good morrow. Good morrow. Um, You know, I tried to make it to Staten Island. Uh, Sounded cool. Uh, I saw a nice ad in the post um, earlier last week. Beautiful stadium. And, you know, you had me laughing, uh, uh, retelling, you know, stories of some players. When I first tuned you in, uh, I'm saying to myself, boy, these guys are right. 
and, and your dad had gotten you a first baseman's glove, right? I mean, you were playing first. Yeah, I wanted but, to play uh, first base. Right, that was a position I picked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, and, you know, uh, what else? I was going to talk about before, I'll say real quick, you know, million dollars for a studio on a cruise ship. Uh, you know, I'm a blue-collar guy, 25 years with the MTA. That, that, that's more, you know, accommodating to deep pockets. And, you know, I, no way I could do that. But also, I uh, mentioned to Ken, uh, the Mets, you know, they got the mojo. And uh, I, I was at some classic games. Uh, the 69 World Series, the last game I was there, I was 15. Uh, the dust-up at second base, Pete Rosebud Harrison. And when they filmed the movie, the triple play, Frank, uh, the Odd Couple, I was at that game, 1968, and the first time I saw Roberto Clemente, my jaw dropped, you know. But um, Oh, I can imagine. Uh, all right. And and, uh, and good for, uh, I heard it earlier, so Sydney is having a charity uh, softball game. Uh, you know, good for him. Right, Thursday. Uh, I'm looking but, forward to playing, yes. All right, Frank. Always good chatting. And, oh, I got to say uh, one more thing. My daughter, I mentioned, you know, my son, my son and daughter, went to Cortland. Let's go Cortland. My daughter's a teacher. She's married five years, 32. She had a first child, a boy. Oh, that's uh, great. So I'm, a, I'm a grandpa, uh, better late than never at 68. Oh, that's, my drop, that's tremendous. Congratulations. Thanks, Frank. And all the best. Keep doing what you're doing. And uh, that's why I'm tuned in. I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Mike. Very kind of you. Congratulations again. Um, all right. Quick, quick, quickly, let me mention this. Obviously, the whole world is seemingly obsessed with uh, the royals, right? There is a man by the name of Simon Durante Day, and he claims to be the illegitimate son of King Charles III and Camilla Parker Bowles. I have just posted his photo on my Facebook page. Tell me if you think they look alike. Um, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. The UK obviously has been mourning the death of Queen Elizabeth since her passing. And now you have this 56-year-old man from Australia who claims to be in a particularly deep state of mourning because he says this is his grandmother. And the man in question is Simon Charles Durante Day, and he claims to be the unacknowledged son of the new King of England, King Charles III. He spoke to uh, Channel News 7 and explained that he felt frustrated and disappointed at being completely rejected and ignored by the royal family. Well, obviously, um, I'm sad. I mean, it's the morning, firstly, of uh, of an opportunity of solving this thing politely and maybe we should say the right way. Um, disappointment. Um, disappointment at the whole process. Um, and... Um, there's also anger. I mean, there's obviously going to be anger there as well. It's mixed emotions at the moment. But like everybody, uh, we're, we're all going through a mourning process. I mean, as an English person myself, uh, I grew up the Queen. The Queen's always been there. So to lose her is quite, is quite significant. So um, uh, after the death of his grandmother... This gentleman claimed via social media platforms that he received hundreds of messages from people sending him their condolences. So he claims that he was given up for, and I have no idea how valid any of these claims are. He claims that he was given up for adoption at the age of eight months old and that his adoptive grandmother confessed to him before she died 
that he was the secret son of Charles and his wife, the new queen, Queen Camilla. He's desperate for King Charles III to do a DNA test to confirm his claims are in fact true, but his attempts to contact the royal family have ultimately proven futile. Now, I have no idea if there's any legitimacy to this claim of illegitimacy, but if you're the royal family, if you're King Charles, right, you can't do a DNA test unless you believe this is true and you want to do the right thing. But if this is not true, let's say, or you're not sure it's true, you can't do a DNA test every time someone comes out of the woodwork claiming to be your long-lost son, can you? One of the other more interesting th- but you could see his picture and tell me if you think it looks like him, facebook.com slash fan. One of the other interesting theories that I saw of this fellow, was the thinking that he might be the illegitimate son of Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew, of course, roped up in the whole Jeffrey Epstein situation. And we know he's something of a Lothario. And that's not the craziest thing that I've heard. Uh, On the monarchy front, Antigua and Barbuda will vote to cut ties with the British monarchy. Welcome to the 21st century Antigua and Barbuda. I am wondering if we're going to see more places do this now that Queen Elizabeth passed away, who everybody seems to like, and everyone realizes how silly this is to have a head of state that is in that position because of their hereditary bloodline. So on Saturday, following King Charles III official ascension, Antiguan and Barbudan Prime Minister Gaston Brown announced that he would hold a referendum within the next three years to decide whether to remove the British monarch as the country's head of state and instead become a republic. As the Prime Minister explained in his announcement, quote, this is not an act of hostility, it is a final step to complete the circle of independence to become a truly sovereign nation. King Charles is currently monarch and head of state in 14 countries outside the United Kingdom. Does anybody else see how crazy this is? I mean, this is just nuts. This is just nuts. Come on. Get with it. 800-848-9222. Speaking of the um, queen... One last thing I wanted to mention on this front. You know of my fondness for eggs. Eggs are my favorite food. I love every possible variety of eggs that you can make. Omelet, soft-boiled, egg salad, shirred, you name it. Sunny side up, over easy, over hard. Every way that you can make eggs, I am a fan. Um, well, a nutritionist is getting some headlines after she shared a scrambled egg recipe that was apparently beloved by Queen Elizabeth II. Listen to this. Lee Holmes said she received the royal recipe from an unnamed friend who cooked for Her Majesty several years ago, and it includes two unusual ingredients. What do you think they were? What do you think they were? Well. While Elizabeth II embodied time-honored tradition in her role as monarch, 
it appears she preferred a more experimental approach when it came to her eggs. Enjoying them seasoned with, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? I've never tried this, but I'm going to try it. She liked her scrambled eggs seasoned with nutmeg and lemon. Holmes explained on her website, Ma'am loved to sometimes start the day with a protein-packed breakfast, and these eggs were tailored to the way that she particularly liked them. Isn't that interesting? Quote, Ever since I was given this recipe a few years ago, I've been making these eggs on the regular, and they are spectacular. I always make them when friends come to stay. The nutritionist said her chef pal put three organic eggs and a tablespoon of milk into a bowl before whisking away. The cook would then pour the mixture into a warm pan along with a tablespoon of butter. Just before the eggs were set, the lemon zest and nutmeg were added and mixed into the concoction on low heat. Then when the scrambled eggs were set, they were promptly served to Her Majesty. And the meal was also garnished with pepper and chives. Hmm. That is really interesting. See, they say the queen didn't vary her diet much, but she did occasionally enjoy scrambled eggs for breakfast. Well, uh, if you want the uh, breakfast fit for a monarch, now you know what to do. 800-848-9222. We're going to do the $1,000 minute shortly, but first let me say hello to Tony in Florida. Hello, Tony. Hey, Frank. I uh, hope you're doing well. Good morrow to you. Thanks. And just, Yeah, and I... Uh, like your little uh, idea about the Statute of uh, Liberty. Yes, I'm going to try that. Yeah, but uh, I was I, I, I wanted to remind you about uh, Edgar Allan Poe because you're looking for a member of Bailey for uh, yeah, interesting things. He's from Baltimore, and uh, he uh, there might be something to bring up at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's not really available for an interview, but uh, yeah. but yeah, maybe we can go visit the place where he uh, he he died and was found in the in the street. So that might be sure. interesting. Might be interesting. Well, yeah, Frank, mm-hmm. can you can you obtain a copy of that transcript for that Syed guy that they got out of uh, out of out of jail, a terrorist? Well, if you can, maybe. We well, he's can not a terrorist. Through. He was. Supposedly, uh, he murdered his girlfriend. He's not a terrorist. Well, okay. I, I misunderstood. I thought he was a terrorist, too, no. in some way. No, but, no, no. Uh, but uh, if they, maybe maybe if you could get a, a transcript, then uh, they, they, you could find some, some points to make uh, for the uh, prosecutors if they you know, if they try to get them to uh, retry him. Well, but uh, what if he's I innocent? I don't want to. I don't want to be, you know, banging the drum for... Uh, for him to be retried if he was innocent. Well, of course not. But uh, if you can look through the transcript, it'll give you some insight into whether, uh, you know, you think he might be innocent, and that might would be helpful as well. All right. Well, I will put that on my list. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Tony there. All right. Uh, we're going to give – we're going to try and give somebody a chance to win $1,000. If you are interested in this, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, 
we're going to give you an opportunity to win this money. All you have to do is answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Morning, Baltimore, from the musical Hairspray, uh, a, a terrific show, a terrific show. I never saw the play, but I enjoyed the motion picture very much. All right, uh, it is time for us to try and give somebody an opportunity to win some money because it's time for us to play. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you very much, Chris Libertini. Let's say hello to Rick in Huntington. Hello, Rick. Hi, Frank. Rick, uh, you familiar with how this game works? Yes, I've been listening. Great. All right. If you're ready, we'll get started. Thank you, sir. How many letters are in the word cat? Three. What do you call a hamburger with cheese on it? A cheeseburger. How many quarters are in a typical American football game? Four. In which museum can you find the Mona Lisa? The Louvre. What is the capital of the state of Maryland? Baltimore. Ah, no, I'm sorry. Sorry, Rick. It is Annapolis. Annapolis, home of the U.S. Naval Academy. They're great in Annapolis. Uh, Sorry, Rick. Rick, uh, give Kenneth your information, and we will give you a consolation prize of some sort. So you might have seen the news that Woody Allen was going to be retiring from filmmaking. Now, Woody Allen is a uh, very controversial guy because um, of all the allegations involving Dylan Farrow and everything of that nature. And it really didn't surprise me that he was leaning towards retiring. I think it was reported based on his interview that he did with a Spanish magazine that he was retiring after his next film. So it also didn't surprise me because he's he's in his late 80s. I mean, at some point you got to retire, right? I mean, I guess. 
Although maybe you don't. Clint Eastwood in his 90s making pictures. But it also didn't surprise me because this is similar to remarks that he made in his interview with Alec Baldwin back in June of 2022. This is just, uh, what month is it now? Three months ago. This is what he told Alec Baldwin. I thought to myself, what if I, what if I didn't make film? You know, this is a nice way to live. Then I thought, well, maybe I'll make one or two more. You know, I'm 86 years old, but I like staying home and writing. Um, I, I, I'll probably make at least one more movie, but the, a lot of the thrill is gone because it doesn't have um, the whole cinema effect. You know, it isn't when I started, you'd do a film and it would go into a movie house and movie houses all over the country and people would come, you know, by the hundreds to watch it in big groups on a big screen. Now you do a movie and, um, you know, you get a couple of weeks in a movie house, maybe six weeks, four weeks, two weeks, whatever. And then it goes right to streaming or right to pay-per-view. And people love sitting home with their big screens and watching on their television sets. And they have good sound and clear picture. And But it's, it's not the same as when uh, I went into the movie business. And so it's not as enjoyable to me um, as it was. I don't get the same fun. So um, it didn't surprise me when it was reported that uh, that he told this Spanish newspaper that he intended to retire from making movies and to de- dedicate more time to writing. Because I had seen that interview with Alec Baldwin. Even though it didn't surprise me, I was a little bummed. And I know a lot of people hate Woody Allen. A lot of people think he's a child molester. A lot of people don't like the fact that he married his stepdaughter. A lot of people just take issue with him, whatever. I, just saying nothing of the man, I absolutely love his films. There's so many different types of Woody Allen films. For instance, uh, Bananas is certainly not like... um, Everyone says I love you. Annie Hall is certainly not like um, Manhattan murder mystery. The one thing that every Woody Allen picture has in common is I absolutely love it. I love his films. Absolutely love them. So I was kind of disappointed that he's not going to make these films anymore. So anyway, it comes out yesterday that this after Woody made those comments that were quoted in those Spanish newspaper, a representative for Woody Allen released a statement, quote, Woody Allen never said he was retiring, nor nor did he say he was writing another novel. He said he was thinking about not making films as making films that go straight or very quickly to streaming platforms is not so enjoyable for him as he's a great lover of the cinema experience. Currently, he has no intention of retiring and is very excited to be in Paris shooting his new movie, which will be the 50th. So that's interesting. And if I believe that that statement is accurate because it's basically the same thing that he told uh, Alec Baldwin. So irrespective of what people think of Woody Allen, I am looking forward to... Um, being able to see a few more years of Woody Allen films. 
So that's that. All right, 800-848-9222, uh, 800-848-9222. couple of quick things. One, uh, one of the fellas that played in the softball game that we had on uh, Saturday, he sends me an SMS text message, uh, my friend Darren, sends me an SMS text message saying he's tested positive for COVID, right? Oh, sorry to tell you, I didn't know. I wasn't feeling 100%. Okay. But we were outside. I mean, he did come to my mom's afterwards, and if he was infecting people, maybe he did them there. I think he did hand me a, a piece of food or something, which is somewhat cause for alarm. But what am I going to do? Am I going to use the fact that I might I'm, I was exposed to someone that had COVID on Saturday as an opportunity to stay home from work for three days? No, that's not really my style. Am I going to run and get a COVID test? No. Because, you know, what if I'm positive and what if I'm not? What I am going to do is the following. If I am sick, I am not going to come to work. I am going to choose to, I'm going to ask to do the show from home. If I am sick, if I am not sick, I'm going to come in and do the show as I always do. That's my plan. So last night, I'm preparing for the show. (laughs) And Bob Brown who's one of our local news anchors, who sits maybe 25, 30 feet away from me, he's coughing up a lung. He's coughing like Doc Holliday uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in an infirmary. The guy is coughing like crazy. I don't even, I was nowhere near him, and I hear him coughing loudly. As soon as I walk in, Alex Barnard says to me, Hey, you guess who? Guess who's doing the news? This is for WABC in New York. He says, "Guess who's doing the news?" I said, "Is it you?" He says, "Yes, Bob Brown's got a, a sore throat." Yeah, I said, "Okay, good for Alex." And I figured that meant Bob Brown wasn't coming in. Meanwhile, I look over in his area; he's there coughing like crazy. And all I could think is, COVID or no COVID. What is this guy doing here coughing over everything? Um, Guys, for people of any profession, but especially radio people, honestly, if you're sick, stay home. You're not doing anyone a favor by coming to work and coughing over everything. So that's what's been going on in my head for the last six hours. You got this Darren exposure on COVID. And I, I work in the same facility as this coughing news anchor. So, meanwhile, the last hour or so, I feel like I have this feeling in the back of my throat that I might be getting a cold. Now, I am not coughing or anything. I still feel pretty good. I think I sound pretty good. But it's just, I get that feeling in the back of my throat just you get it when you're at the very, very beginning of getting a cold. And now I can't tell if that's because I'm exposed to this coughing Bob Brown who was probably sick yesterday when he came in or um, if if I got COVID from Darren after seeing him Saturday or if this is just something in my own brain that because I've been exposed to all these sick people, my brain is fooling my throat into thinking there's something going on there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go home 
in 12 minutes. I am going, after I take care of my son and so forth, go to sleep, hopefully get a lengthy sleep, phone on Do Not Disturb, and the many, many people, both political campaigns and would-be radio guests that all have my number, I'm going to put it on Do Not Disturb, not answer the phone, and then I'm going to wake up, and then if I feel good, I'm coming to work, and if I don't feel good, if I'm coughing or I have a sore throat or whatever, I am going to try to do the show from home. That's what the responsible thing to do is for everybody. Now, you know, it's funny. Yesterday, I had a dream. I had a very bizarre dream that John Wayne was still alive. Now, John Wayne has been dead for over 40 years. I'm a big fan of uh, of John Wayne and always loved his pictures. And, uh, you know, I don't know what he was like as a person. I've heard conflicting things. I'd like to think he was a pretty good guy. I met his son, which was a real thrill to meet his son, Patrick, who, of course, was also an actor. He was in The Searchers. And John Wayne is something. I don't know why, but in my dream, I got a call during the show, during the show, that I had to, that there was an opportunity to interview John Wayne, who was for some reason alive and was for some reason in Midtown Manhattan. So I left during the show, and I think what we were doing is we were playing a recorded interview, and the plan was going to be for me to track down John Wayne and interview him remotely live. on the. And this is so bizarre for so many reasons. Then I couldn't get in touch with John Wayne. And then, for some reason, I couldn't find him. And then I still have to try and do the show. So, in my dream, I break in, which is not something I would ever do. I break into the home of our owner, John Katsimatidis, not to steal anything, but to use a remote radio setup that, in my dream, he has in his house. Now, I don't even know if he has it in his house. But this is in my dream. And then I start broadcasting there, and a friend of mine is with me for some reason, and he keeps distracting me. And all I'm doing now is panicked because I don't know what's on the air. This is all while the show was on the air. And I'm panicked that there's that there's just commercials playing. Keep talking, mister. And, uh, and then I, I finally am able to get to John's setup at his house. And I get the, it's a different type of microphone than the one I normally use. Instead of a microphone that you just talk into, it's headphones with a microphone attached to them. And I start broadcasting, finally, and they've been stalling. Alex Barnard and and everybody else has been stalling for a few minutes. And they're playing commercials over and over again. And I'm talking into this makeshift microphone. And the microphone breaks. Microphone breaks off, and I am now flipping out. One, because that means they're not going to be able to hear me on the show. And two, because I just broke my boss's microphone. So I woke up in a panic. Is You ever do that where you have one of these stress dreams? I guess it's the, the radio equivalent of um, not being prepared for a test or something. And um, I woke up, and it took me a, a little while to realize that it was just a dream, but but that was that. 
All right, uh, 800-848-9222. Hopefully, if you're in the midst of a dream or you're just waking up, you are less panicked than I was when I woke up yesterday afternoon. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame and give you an opportunity to be heard on any subject straight ahead. They're never going to catch you, Frank. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano thanks for listening we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment where you get the opportunity to be heard for on any subject for 15 seconds uh please make sure to follow me on twitter at frank morano that's frank m-o-r-a-n-o i uh i put a lot of interesting articles on there and just some random thoughts from time to time and uh, if you like me on Facebook at facebook.com slash MoranoFan, you will see my artwork, my AI artwork, of a statue of limitations. I also created a statute of um, liberty. I did it in the style of, um, who's that artist? The, that artist that does the diner, Edward Hopper. Edward Hopper does that, uh, he does that famous picture of, uh, you know, oil paintings where you have these different people sitting at a, at a coffee shop, including different stars at a coffee shop. He does all that stuff. It didn't look great. I'm not going to post it. It didn't look great. But I do like the way this statue, uh, this statue of limitations looks. So if you want to see it, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Moreno fan. All right, without further ado, it's time for... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Ray in Woodhaven. You know, earlier in the show, you played a record by Telly Savalas. He fancied himself quite the prognosticator. In fact, every year he published a list of his predictions. He called them his televisions. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Neil on Staten Island. Yeah, Frankie, instead of eggs with uh, not making lemon. A bon vivant like you should be eating eggs with foie gras. <laughs> no, don't count on it. Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, the judge, he may tie the Bambino tonight against the Pirates. Unless the pitcher is like you, then it will be nothing but KKKs all the way. Pete in the East Village. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron. David in the Bronx. The next time you have a dream about breaking into someone's house to use their remote studio... Why don't you make it Joe Piscopo's house, who actually has one? Victor in Manhattan. 
talk about reverse scams. I walked into a convenience store yesterday and noticed a big sign on top of the snack section that read, $5,000 grand prize in random drawing contest. See details inside potato chip bag. No purchase necessary. Hey, 800-848-9222. Ina in Manhattan. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Good. Okay. Mr. Gorbachev, tear, tear down that wall. Mr. Biden, put back Trump wall now. E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, Frank, with our reconstructed airports and facilities, they have the nerve to say that we have one of the top or the third rudest city in America. All I have to say is this. I'm a native New Yorker. We have the tall skyscrapers in the beds. Steve in Manhattan. Well, I'm sorry. I hope coming off of an injury. But again, when, when these guys are out for 40, 50 games, you're on the radio complaining that we're paying this money and they can't fix. No, All right. On that note, uh, that slams the lid on things for today. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow's debate day. Uh, So be prepared with debate topics of your choosing. And uh, we'll have some great prizes to give away. Uh, Hopefully I did not catch COVID from Darren or tuberculosis from Bob Brown. But um, I'll be back tomorrow, God willing. Uh, stay in touch. Uh, you can email me, Twitter, Facebook, you know all the rest. Uh, Frank Morano, good day. <laughs>